It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Now, I know you're probably thinking I'm quoting Charles Dickens because of the way the world is right now in 2020, and that's not entirely true. I'm using that quote because today's guest really has a tale of two careers, one career here in North America and one career over in Europe. Uh, he thrived in both, in my opinion, and uh, once he went to Europe, he really became somewhat of a legend in Air Scotland. Today's guest is none other than Sean Byram. Nystrom, Nystrom's really getting some good right hands in. Gillies is down with Sandstrom. Somebody better help Sandstrom. Everyone must be held accountable for their actions. You cannot see your star carried out in a stretcher and do nothing about it. Oh my, did Mick plant one on C-card. Wow. You can't put a bounty on a man's head. I just did. But just a minute, Al Arbor has won mm -hmm. four Stanley Cups, so don't start telling Al Arbor what to do, you and John Davison. Welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I am your host, Joe Lazito. We're up to episode 18, and uh, I really want to thank everybody who has uh, listened. Hopefully you've listened to all the episodes. Uh, if you cherry pick here and there, that's fine too. And if this is your first episode, I urge you to please go back into the archives and listen to all of the other episodes, as I think they're pretty good. But... To all the listeners out there, to all my friends out there who listen, thank you very much. Um, it really is amazing to think that you people listen to the show. Uh, it's very humbling, and thank you so much for the feedback. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, a few of you have asked me about merchandise, which really blows me away. And again, it's very humbling to think that you want to have merchandise about my show. And... Um, uh, what I can tell you is I do have some mugs already made up there at the house and uh, making up a few more. I'm hoping to get some prototypes of a t-shirt uh, delivered to my house this week. And if I think they are done properly, I will order a bunch more and then I will have t-shirts and mugs available. Uh, I've been looking around for hats and um, it seems like everywhere I look, you get one price, then you design the hat, and you say you don't want 10 million uh, hats, and then the price jumps up dramatically. So um, hats I'm not sure about. Uh, hopefully in the near future, I will definitely have mugs. I will definitely have T-shirts. And if, uh, if you're going to buy a mug or a T-shirt from me, man, I don't know what to say. Thank you very much. But stay posted uh, on my social media, and of course, I'll update you on the show. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm able to offer merchandise is because of the artistic brilliance of Joe Marisich. 
Joe is the artistic genius, as I call him, who designed my logo, which I absolutely love. Uh, Joe is a first-class individual, and he's an even better artist. Or he's a first-class artist and an even better individual. That's for you to decide. Either way, great guy, artistic genius. And you can reach Joe for all your art projects on Twitter, at GraphicsJoker, G-R-A-F-I-X-J-O-K-E-R. Or you can hit him up on the website, loudegg.com. Uh, Joe's very easy to work with, and uh, as you can see, quality artist. Um, also, uh, just direct you to a few other podcasts that are along the lines of my own. Uh, Fourth Line Voice podcast, uh, the original. He recently did an episode where he goes through the top ten uh, enforcers of the Saskatoon Blades, which is no easy task. Saskatoon has a pretty rich history of tough players. I mean, hell, for a couple of seasons, they had Tony Twist, Kelly Chase, Kerry Clark, and Kevin Killer Kaminsky on one team. Uh, they've had other guys like Dave Brown and Joey Koser and um, Wade Belak, Chris McAllister. Um, so they've had a ton of guys that have played in Saskatoon. Uh, Wendell Clark's another one. Ton of tough players that have played in Saskatoon. So for Darren to come up with a top 10, I'm sure it wasn't easy, but I bet it was fun. And uh, he's right there locally in Saskatoon, so there's probably nobody better to ask. So I would urge you to uh, check out that show. Darren, of course, is on the Hockey Podcast Network. He has two episodes a week. One is a new episode, and one is a From the Vault style from his original website. I think the last From the Vault was Sean McMorrow. I hope I got that right. I'm not positive, but, uh, but check him out, Hockey Pod Network. Uh, also, that's where Terry Ryan has his show. Um, can't go wrong with either one, either one of those. Uh, Five for Fighting with Alec. Uh, on my way to work this evening, my part-time job, um, I, was, I just started listening. He had Pete Vandermeer on. Uh, I got to know Pete a little bit, not that he'd remember me from Adam, uh, when he was with the Phantoms. Uh, Pete is pretty legendary if you look at his stats. Uh, puts up all kinds of crazy penalty minutes. Uh, comes from a very physical, tough family, and uh, he's probably—I I, don't—no, he is. He's the best, the best of the bunch in terms of uh, toughness, um, and uh, he seems like a real good guy. He seems to be making the rounds right now on the podcast circuit. I think shows like mine and and uh, Darren's and Alec—I think we delve more into the fighting aspect than the other mainstream shows. So. Uh, Pete's had a pretty good, a few pretty good appearances lately, uh, but I'm looking forward to hearing him on Alex's show because I think we get a little more specific into the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts, and the blood, sweat, and tears. So uh, that's something that I'm sure I'll listen to over the next day or so. Finish listening to, maybe even after I'm done recording this. So um, you know, give uh, Five for Fighting and Fourth Line Voice a listen. You won't be disappointed. Um, Let's see. So I hit on the merch. I hit on the podcast. Uh, I hit on Joe. Uh, let's see. So there is something that I, I want to alert everybody to. Um, obviously, even if you're living under a rock, you know what's going on in the world right now. You have the uh, you have the COVID. You have the uh, racial stuff, uh, stuff with the police brutality. How have all that stuff going on right now? And um, if I did not have this podcast, I would completely blow up my Facebook because, goddamn, if Facebook isn't a cesspool, I don't know what is. It is a 
community cesspool, which is sad because I think a lot of good can come out of social media. Um, I think there's some really good groups on social media. Uh, I think that, um, you know, when used for good, it, it's a wonderful tool. Uh, unfortunately, it's also full of tools and they all have an opinion. So the reason why I'm saying this is because I don't know if I've said it on this show, but uh, I've said it to other people in the past. One of my pet peeves, and I, I do have many of them, is when people go on social media and they post that they're leaving whichever platform it is. I, I'm always curious about that. Um, I don't understand why you, you just don't leave. Like, just don't post, just leave. Um, and if it's for the reason why I'm, I'm going to give, then so be it. Uh, but I always feel like, I don't know, like, just go, like, leave. If, and if people notice that you're not there, they'll get in touch with you somehow. And if they don't notice that you're not there, then that's okay too, because you probably don't need them anyway. But, but that is a little bit of a pet peeve of mine. And the reason why I'm saying that is because um, I can't leave Facebook because I have a, a Facebook account for the podcast. So I'm not leaving Facebook. But what I am refraining from doing is really interacting on my personal page. So I'm saying this because there are some really good people who tag me in a lot of posts, who comment on things, and I'm tagged in. And uh, I don't want them to think that I'm ignoring them. Um, but Facebook right now, it's just... I mean, really, since the election, the last election, Facebook has become insufferable. Um, but now, between the virus and the, the stuff that's going on now, it, it's really just too much. Um, and and it's, not, it's not the people posting. I am very much pro-First Amendment. You have the freedom of speech. You post whatever you want to post. I have no issue with that. I don't care what it is. Post away. You want to post pro this, post it. You want to post anti this, post it. The issue that drives me crazy are the comments. Are the comments. Because now all of a sudden, people want to tell you the rules. Their rules as they see it. You can't post anything unless you are aligned with someone's beliefs. And if you're not aligned with their beliefs, then how dare you post how you feel? It's incredible. Now, I'm not even going to touch what's going on right now with the racial stuff and the police brutality stuff. Not even going to touch it. Because no matter what I say, someone will misconstrue it. Probably more than one person will misconstrue it because nobody takes the time to listen. And I'm not even going to touch it. But just to give you an example, let, let's talk about the virus, for instance. So remember when uh, things started closing? and people started losing their jobs. And for some people, Facebook is therapeutic. And uh, you know, they, they go on there and they vent, they let it out. And, and there were a lot of people who were losing their jobs. And they just went on there to say, man, I, I'm having a rough time, I lost my job. Maybe they didn't agree with the, with the governor or the mayor, whatever it is in their particular city or state. And they just vented. And it's rational. As someone who is the, the main breadwinner in my family, my wife works, she contributes, don't get me wrong. I make more money, fortunately. Um, as someone who takes pride in the fact that I help support my family, I totally understand these people that are, are broken up and messed up about 
their places closing and, and uh, politicians closing things down. And I totally, totally get it. But what do you see when people post that stuff? Without a doubt, within the first three comments, well, it's better than being dead, isn't it? Uh, yeah, of course it's, being, it's better than being dead. What a stupid thing to post. Someone out here is, is, going, is struggling with the fact that he can't go to work because his place of business is closed or his city is closed or whatever it is, and you and your infinite wisdom have to tell that person, well, it's better than being dead, isn't it? Yes, of course, asshole, it's better than being dead. It doesn't take away from the sting of the fact that this person might be wondering where the next meal for his family is coming from, you fucking ignoramus. But I digress. So then as things started to close, now you had schools, and schools were closed through this state, and schools were closed through this state. And then finally it was, schools are going to be closed through the rest of the year, which, again, you know, there's a lot to that. But the people I think it affected the most were people who had high school seniors. Because now if school's closed, well, now you're not going to have graduation ceremonies. And you know what? In the grand scheme of things, is a graduation ceremony necessary? Technically, no. But if you raise a child from the minute they're born and they put in the hard work and you're a parent that gives a shit about your kid and they, they complete their high school, and, you know, it's sort of like a ceremony. It's a reward. It's just something saying congratulations. Congratulations, easy for me to say. You put in these 12 years of hard work, 13 years if you count kindergarten, and now you've made this achievement, and now you're on to the next step, which is college. And you had a lot of parents bemoaning the fact that now they wouldn't have the graduation ceremony for their children. Again, in my opinion, Completely reasonable, completely reasonable. Fortunately, it didn't affect me. I didn't have a child graduating high school this year. But as someone who has had a child graduate high school and as someone who's going to have a child graduate high school, I completely understand how sad these parents were that they were not going to get a graduation ceremony for their kids. 100% understood it, and my heart broke for them. But again, what do you have in the comments? Well, it's better than dying, isn't it? Yes, of course it's better than dying. Then you had the people that said, well, X amount of decades ago, kids didn't get a graduation ceremony. They went off to war. I mean, stuff, memes like that and comments like that. Well, isn't it better than going off to war? Yes. In big picture, not having a graduation ceremony is better than not going to war and not dying. Absolutely 100%. Thank you for pointing that out to a person who's upset that they won't get to see their child graduate. Thank you very much for saying that, okay? It, it just is incredible to me that people have no self-control and that people cannot, everyone, all I hear now is everybody is, so, oh, we have to be tolerant, we have to be sympathetic, yet go on Facebook and as long as a person posts something that you don't agree with, there's no sympathy at all. Now I'm fortunate and I'm blessed enough to have two kids. But I'd like to think if I didn't have those two kids and I read someone's post about their child not having a graduation ceremony, I would be sympathetic to that because I think it is a pretty big deal. And the last thing I would do would go, well, it's better than them going off to war. I mean, how f <laughs> you gotta be kidding me, okay? And then, and then, of course, overall the whole time, 
you know, this, the virus thing and things closing and being asked to stay inside and all this other stuff, you know, it fucked with a lot of people. And more na- now more than ever, people are very open about mental health issues. And this stuff affected so many people who suffer from mental health issues. And you would get people that would vent about it and say, this is, it's really, it's really screwing with me. I have mental health issues. And maybe some people developed mental health issues because of this, because of being isolated, because of not being able to go out, because of not being able to keep up their routine. And then, of course, these people pouring their hearts out, saying that they're struggling. And then you get people that say, Oh, poor baby, you have to stay in and watch Netflix. Oh, poor baby, you have to do this, you have to do that. What? Why? Why, why, why? Why the fuck do you have to go and shit on someone when they're pouring their heart out? Like I said, maybe some people don't have an ear to bend. They don't have a shoulder to cry on. So for them, Facebook is their only option that they go out and they vent or they're looking for someone to have some sympathy. And a lot of people do, but there always has to be that shithead that has to say, oh, poor baby, you can't go out. Oh, poor baby, you can't get a haircut. Oh, poor baby, you can't do this. You have to stay in and you have to watch TV. Why? Why are you such an asshole? But that's Facebook. So I can't, I can't do it anymore. There's just too many assholes on Facebook and there's no more conversation there's no more polite disagreement there's no more nothing it's just a person posts something and another person disagrees with it and that's it and they can't control themselves keep scrolling is just not a thing anymore so you know what i've had it and um like i said it doesn't matter if i ever go on facebook again for anything i am nothing i am just a guy i i don't have any power i'm not influencing anybody Okay, but I just want to let those people know who tag me in posts uh, or tag me in comments that if I don't reply or I don't like it or whatever, it's not you. I'm just not checking it anymore. I'm just not doing it. It's idiotic. If there's a way to tag me on the on the podcast page, do that because that I will be checking regularly. But other than that, I've had it. I'm done. And one other thing I will say about what's going on right now with the civil unrest, with the police brutality. Here's what I'm going to say. In 2011, I was almost murdered by a spree killer on a subway. In clear view of two police officers who did jack shit other than hide, shit their pants, and take credit for it once I took the killer down, disarmed him, and apprehended him. I was stabbed seven times. I almost bled to death. After the fact, I went on every podcast, every TV, well, TV show, uh, everywhere I could go, calling for a change to the system. Because everyone wants to focus on this, focus on that. It doesn't matter what change is made. If a change to the system that protects people who do bad things is not fixed, it doesn't matter. I used to say the system is broken. The system is not broken. It's working exactly how they want it to work, okay? I was denied my day in court to hold the two cops accountable because according to law, the police do not owe a duty to protect. In her dismissal papers, Judge Margaret Chan 
basically agreed with my recollection of events, calling them highly credible, but yet still dismissed my case. Now, I'm a noob as far as courts go. Isn't the judge the one that can say, we got we to gotta see this one out. We got we to gotta play this through. Um, you know what? I know that the precedent is set for this, but this is, my case was like no other. And this is where the judge could have stepped up and said, no, we have, to, we have to allow this to go to court. But I was denied my day in court because of the corrupt system that is out there protecting people who do bad things. And I know everybody thinks it's cops. Everybody thinks that all cops are corrupt and all cops are bad. It's not, all right? The system protects people in power. The system protects bad cops, which there are some, and I, I honestly, listen, I'm not getting into this, but if you think all cops are, all cops are bad, I, I think you're nuts. But some people think that, and that's fine. Free speech. You think that, you do you. Think about how many cops there are in America, and I understand there's one incident is one incident too many, but there are a lot of cops in the country that do good things, but they don't make the headlines. But again, I'm not taking away anything. There are bad cops, and there are shitty cops who are shitty humans and do bad things, and they should be held to the flame, okay? And they need to be held accountable. My thing is, I want everybody held accountable for their actions, everybody. Cop, no cop, public figure, average Joe, everybody needs to be held accountable for their actions. The system is fucked. I have been calling for change since 2012, or I guess late 2011, 2012, when my case was dismissed, when I was screwed. Nobody gave a shit. Nobody. So welcome to the party, everybody. I've been screaming for this for almost 10 years, okay? So things need to be changed. I hope it's changed. I hope the system has changed, but not just for cops, not just for cops, for everybody, everybody. Everybody needs to be held accountable for their actions. Thank you. That's all I'm going to say about that. So I'm sorry that that intro went a little bit too long. I'm sorry that it got a little heavy, uh, but I just had to get a few things off my chest. It's my show. Um, but one thing I really never wanted to do is make it about me. It really is about the guests. And today I have a really good one. Uh, Sean Byram is a guy who I met when he was with Capital District playing with uh, Dean, which a lot of my stories start out that way. Uh, you know, being buddies with Dean Ewan really has opened a lot of doors for me. Dean's a great guy, of course. He's like a brother to me. He is a brother to me. And I met Sean back in the day uh, with Cap District. And, um, you know, great guy. We hit it off. I mean, it's, it's not so much me the, being the reason why we hit it off. I think I hit it off with a lot of these guys because they're just great guys. They're just, you know, average guys with a pretty cool job, but they treat people with respect. And uh, it's always the tough guys, guys who play physical that, uh, that are that way. And Sean is no different. And... Um, we reconnected back in 2004, 2005, uh, and I did an interview with him for the website that I had, which was a print interview. Uh, and then uh, we reconnected again um, probably a month or so ago, maybe six weeks ago, trying to get him to come on the show, and uh, we just couldn't ever match up. Uh, and then I found out he works in the mines, 
so it's like as manly as you ever feel. Then you actually talk to someone who has a job like that, like Dean works construction, Sean Byram's working in the mines. Like these are like old school like man jobs. And you're like, oh yeah, I sell tickets or whatever. But uh, but then you go, yeah, I work in the mines, and you're like, oh okay, so all right, you do real deal stuff. But uh, I am so happy that I was able to catch up with Sean. He really is a great guy. So um, you've heard me ramble on now for about 22 minutes. Uh, I don't apologize for it. I feel like the stuff I had to say was, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's important, but uh, I guess topical might be the, the right way, the right thing to say. But uh, anyway, I'm done. I hope that what I said made sense. And in case it didn't, someone who will make sense is Sean Byram. Enjoy it, everybody. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Coliseum Chronicles, The Penalty Box. I'm your host, Joe Lazito. Today, it is a, a big thrill of mine to uh, speak to someone who I haven't really spoken to in 15 to 20 years. And uh, I just found out he's working in the coal mine, so he's got a real man job and everything, which uh, makes me feel like less of a man, because I know this guy is... Uh, He's tough as nails anyway, but uh, I know he's out there doing manly work and everything, and here I am just uh, working in a box office. But uh, I've been a big fan of this guy for a long time, and I'm so happy that we're finally able to hook up. So uh, it's my pleasure to introduce you to Mr. Sean Byram. Sean, how's it going tonight? Good. How are you, Joe? It's uh, it's good to uh, be on the show. We've had trouble hooking up. We've been back and forth and making dates and trying to get this done and finally tonight we're gonna gonna get a chance to to do it well i'm really looking forward to it you know i've said before when you're dealing with uh with guys you know uh i don't know how many of my guests are millionaires and that don't have to work but i work you work and uh, we both have families so it's bound to happen i'm just glad we can hook up now and uh and tell the people all about your career we can't let Bowen get all the glory. We got to talk about the old man too. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it's been interesting uh, having Bowen uh, playing and being as successful as he has thus far. So uh, it's actually been good because I've ran into a lot of people that's awesome. uh, that I had lost touch with as far as in the hockey world. So it's been pretty neat. He's kind of got uh, got us back in the hockey scene again. That's great. That's great. So we're going to talk about Bowen a little bit later. Let's talk about the old man right now. So uh, the first question that I ask all my guests, and uh, I think I asked you this a while ago. I, I don't know. Is it uh, is it Nipawa, Nepawa? How do you say that word? How do you say that town? It's, it, it's Nipawa, Manitoba. Okay. It's, uh, it's a Sioux, Sioux word for land of plenty. It's in the wheat belt, so it's... Uh, it's fertile country for growing, and, and so that's that's where the, the name came from. And if I had a time machine and I went back in time and I saw you skating on a lake uh, as a six-year-old, seven-year-old, eight-year-old, who were you? Who was your favorite player as a kid that you would emulate on the ice? Um, my favorite player always was Daryl Settler. Uh, I don't know. It's weird how you... Uh, you know what you pick up on or whatever over the course of time um, but for whatever reason from the, the day I started watching hockey on Saturday nights Daryl Sittler was my favorite player and uh, Toronto was my favorite team and Boreas Salming was my favorite player that was a defenseman but I was a forward so Daryl 
Settler was my favorite player. Oh, well, that's not a bad favorite player. Didn't he have, what, do you have 10 points in a game? Yeah, and actually, I think that was, was that, would that have been 78 or 79 that that happened? I'm pretty sure I was watching. It was against Boston. I think I was watching the game, but I wouldn't have been that old, but I'm pretty sure I was watching it. No, that, I mean, just to, to think about 10 points in one game, I mean, it's, to, first of all, for a team to score even 10 goals, in order for a guy to get 10 points is, like, unthinkable. But, you know, Sittler was a, a pretty good player, so that's not a bad idol to have. No, and it, uh, the interesting thing about about that is um, there's been some pretty good players since Daryl. Sittler had his 10-point game. You know, Gretzky, I'm not quite sure how many 8-point games he had in Lemieux, but you would have thought that those one of those two would have maybe had a crack at, at that record but uh, Daryl still got it and, and when you watch that I've watched it a few times on YouTube it's funny how the game goes when things are going good for you you know you the bounces you get and when you're confident it, it just it just grows and builds and, and uh, it's a pretty neat neat game to watch oh for sure yeah yeah so the um, the earliest uh, stats that I, I found for you was uh, with the Regina Pats Canadian Midget AAA team in uh, 1984-85 uh, I see that you played 25 games, you had 33 points 38 PIMS uh, one of your teammates uh, from that is a guy who went on to win the Stanley Cup uh, you played uh, Midget with Lyle Odeline yeah Lyle uh, actually Lyle played and his, uh, he had Lyle had two brothers. Selmar was a first rounder. Selmar was two years older than Lyle and I. Um, Selmar was a first rounder to Edmonton in '84, I believe. And then, uh, yeah, I played with Lyle with the Pac Canadians. He and funny thing, how people's game changes over time. Lyle was a skilled guy. Is that right? Yeah, a lot in midget and even in junior, he was a skilled guy. Um, he started fighting a little bit in junior and did pretty good at it, and then we all know how well he did it uh, when he, you know, decided he had to do that to make the NHL. Um, you know, when he went to the American League, he, he started fighting more, and he ended up having a really solid career, um, uh, uh, mostly being a physical player. Now, that he was a, a skilled player, too, and that's what gets lost with a lot of uh, these players that take on that role. You know, there's a ton of them that were, were really skilled players too, but they just never really got a chance Definitely. to show that part of their game. Yeah. Now, um, that season you also played four games with the Regina Pats. So I guess my question would be, um, was that similar to a call-up, let's say? Maybe Regina needed a player or something and maybe you're having a good season? Uh, and then uh, you played, ended up four games with Regina? Yeah, that, that was kind of... The, the Pac Canadians were basically all, all, the, the, all the prospects for the Pats were on the Pac Canadians, and then a few of the kids from the city that were good enough to make it too. They usually tried to get you in a game or two um, because that way you, you would lose your eligibility for uh, NCAA scholarships. Yeah. So, you know, it was also to, you know, to 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 show that you know 
appreciate what you were doing at the time also, but there was always a few ulterior motives to yeah. those call-ups because most of us weren't really, uh, you know, making a big difference. We were just getting a chance to see what it was like and get our feet wet in the league. And, and, and we, you know, for the most part, weren't going to make the difference in the game. So they, they did it a lot of times to get that scholarship thing out of the way. Uh, and three players who you uh, played with uh, in Regina for those four games, two of them have Islanders ties. One of them is just a legend uh, on his own without Islander ties, and that was uh, you played with uh, Sharky, Kerry Clark, uh, yeah. Mark Jansons, and yeah. the, the Grim Reaper, Stu Grimson. So uh, what do you remember about those three guys from junior? Well, they're all uh, interesting people. Grimmer, uh He's probably one of the biggest, strongest guys I ever played with. Um, he was uh, very personable. Um, he, he, he had a, a business side when it came to the physical part of the game, which, uh, which he pretty, pretty well had to have. Um, then um, Sharky, Kerry Clark, he... Uh, I think he's probably one of the most underrated tough guys Agreed. that I played with. He he was actually a skilled player. He could skate, he could shoot, he could stick handle. Um, he kind of got one of those guys that got, you know, cookie-cuttered into being a tough guy, and that's kind of all he got to do. Um, super guy, great team guy. Yeah. Um, and uh, another guy that I don't know if you said his name but brad lauer was on that region oh yeah mm -hmm. yep and brad lauer um we kind of followed each other around our whole career and uh i still stay in touch with love quite a bit he just got the uh coach of the year in the western hockey yep. league he's been he's been coaching um in different leagues for gosh it's got to be 20 years and it's sure good to see Lau having success as a head coach because he was usually assistant coaching, and um, and and now that he's kind of got a chance um, to be the head guy, he's he's doing really well. Yeah. Edmonton. And then who was the other guy? There was Mark Mark downtown. Jansen. Oh, and and Jans. Yeah, you know Mark Jansen, just a top-notch quality guy. Yeah. Um, He's another guy that when he went to pro, kind of got, uh, you know, he got playing that, that tough role, but Mark was a great hockey player, great yeah. two-way, great uh, in both ends of the rink. Uh, he, uh, he was captain of the Pats, um, and he just he's just a quality class guy. I don't know if you know where he is now. Someone told me he was working on Wall Street or something. I don't know where he is now, but yeah. he was very intelligent too. I think he got the Scholastic Player of the Year one year in WHL. Yeah, but, mm -hmm. but just a super guy and a good hockey player too. Yeah, no, toughest Yeah, probably he's, underrated as toughness wise too. Definitely underrated as far as toughness goes, and I think you know uh, once he got out of the Ranger organization when he went to Hartford. I, I think they gave him a chance there, and uh, 
I think he played he played a regular shift in Hartford and everything, so I think they gave him a chance, and it's probably where he was at his best. I, I reached out to him, so hopefully he'll be on the show uh, uh, soon because I love the guy. So, uh, so, I mean, yeah, and he's a center. You know, being a center, like I was saying with Danny Lacroix, there's not many centers that play physical like that. So if you find a guy like a Mark Jansons or Danny Lacroix who can play a good defensive game, uh, good on faceoffs and can actually fight. To me, those guys are so rare. It's almost like you have you have like two players in one. If you get a guy at, at center that can do that. Well, yeah, and and you know, in the late '80s and '90s, every team was looking for that big, tough centerman, right? Yeah. And uh, they weren't easy to come by. Lindros, probably one of the best that you know uh, that I could think of off the top of my head, but. Yeah, Mark. Uh, Mark was a great player and a great person, and and uh, like I said, I, I it interests me to know what he was doing. Someone told me at one time that he was uh, financial advisor or something, which wouldn't surprise me because I knew he'd probably do something like that when he was done playing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. <laughs> so the next season was a, you played a full year with Regina. So did the four games that you played. In uh, eighty four, eighty five, do you think that helped you uh, going into the next season as far as like training camp goes? It was only four games, but you, you got a taste of it and you kind of knew what to expect. Yeah, I think anytime, anytime you you get uh, you know you get to you know your feet wet, it helps. Um, I don't know in my case if it did. I was so darn nervous and uptight all the time. I'm not sure four games was enough kind of to get me comfortable. Um, it was my dream to play in the Western Hockey League, so it was definitely a thrill. Um, I think experience-wise, it always helps, you know, to get a few games in. Um, just helps you get a little bit closer to being comfortable, and then when you're comfortable, you can play your best hockey. So. Well, you must have done something right because that summer, in the fourth round, the Islanders drafted you. You were the 80th overall pick. So um, did you expect to get drafted? If you did, um, and I know there's some things where guys can only be drafted in certain rounds. Did you think you were going to go higher? Did you think you were going to go lower? Um, and had you spoken to the Islanders prior to the draft? Um, no, I hadn't. Uh, I was rated in the sixth round going into the draft. And, and in those days, if you were big and you could skate a little bit, you usually got drafted. And that was kind of um, where I fit in. I was rated in the sixth round, and I ended up going in the fourth round, which was a huge thrill for me. I was just ex just as excited as if I would have went in the first round. Yeah. Um, and then to go to the Islanders, um, you know, if, if Toronto wasn't my favorite team the islanders probably would have been and i and i looked up to clark gillies so much because he was an ex-regina pat that it yeah. was it was such a thrill um to go to the islanders and 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 to go as high as i did i had missed most of the season with mononucleosis so i i think i played 40 some games in my draft year and and uh and I never played very much, so it was it was definitely just I was a spe I was a speculation pick. I had size and I had a pretty good year the 
season before in Midget, and, and from what I was told, that's kind of why I got drafted as high as I did. Oh, okay. Um, so now you said you were a little uptight, you're a little nervous uh, playing in Regina. So how did those nerves translate when you walk into New York Islanders training camp, your first camp, and there's guys like Brian Trottier, Dennis Potvin, Mike Bossy, Billy Smith, Kenny Morrow still there. Uh, then you get like young, young superstar like a Pat LaFontaine is still there. You walk in and you see guys like that. What, what's your impression? You know, it's 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 probably easy for you to understand the feeling that you would have being such a hockey fanatic growing up. I it's hard. Like I was just in awe, and and all those guys from the four cups were still there. Um, all of them were yeah. still there, and when we showed up at Caniac Park, was which yep. is where they had training camp, and to walk through the room and to see those guys, Dennis Potman and Gillies and Trache and Bossy and Nystrom and Stefan Pearson and Kelly Rudy, like, I mean, the list goes on and on. It was, it was such a thrill, and, and to be totally honest, I don't think I ever really played as well as I could. I think I was a little bit too in awe of, of the players yeah. and, and even the players on the other teams. Like uh, They weren't human to me growing up. They were <laughs> on another level. And, and, and I never totally got comfortable. I finally did in the minors at that third year I got comfortable playing mm. and I had a really good year. But other than that, I never totally got comfortable uh, the next, when I signed with Chicago and went, and I had a little stint up there for a month, a little over a month, you know, I never really got uh, comfortable there either. It was just, I was out of my comfort zone and, and never had time to get out of it. Um, but uh, back to the original question, I'm kind of babbling on. That's okay. It was something else to walk in there. And a funny story is, and I maybe should tell this, but <laughs> my girlfriend at the time's uncle was a huge Regina Pat fan and he also was a huge Clark Gillies fan and I uh, that first year in Caniac Park uh, I fricked I got in there when no one was around and I looked around and I couldn't see that anybody would could see me so I snuck a trotje right off his right off his uh Right off the stick rack, I snuck a trotche, a bossy, and a ghillie stick. Wow. I probably wondered where the hell they went. <laughs> and, I brought, and I brought them back to Canada with me when I came back from camp and gave it to my girlfriend's uncle, Danny, at the time. And I, I hope he's still got the sticks, but uh, it's kind of funny story. I wondered always if they even noticed that they were missing a stick on their rack. <laughs> well, I'm sure you were his... Uh his favorite boyfriend, obviously, for his uh, for his niece, because I can't imagine anyone else gave him stuff like that. Yeah, no, and I, to be honest, there's been a few times when I thought, gee, I wish I still had those two, those sticks myself, but yeah. he, he would have enjoyed them way more than I would have, so it's good to be able to, uh, you know, give him something like that. That's, that is a good story. Yeah. So, so, um, Islanders, they used to have. I, I probably when you were there, they used to have the uh, the blue and white white scrimmages, uh, the Arbor Cup. If you remember those, if they had those while you were there, 
So I'm guessing, at least in that first camp, you probably just skated with the with the other rookies. You didn't play with any of the uh, regular guys, I would think, right? No, what happened those first few years of training camp, uh, the coaching staffs basically took their frustrations out on all us young guys, and we got <laughs> skated hard, two two practices a day, and and then a workout, and then I believe at that time they had a rule with the union, the players association, that the veterans could only be at the rink for so long. Mm -hmm. So all us young guys, all the draft kids and kids that weren't really expected to make it for a while, we had long days um, at camp. And uh, we still got to kind of rub shoulders with those guys, you know, in passing and in the dressing rooms, because they had us all dressing it. Uh, on one side and then you just walk through the door in the smaller dressing rooms you know all the all the big guys were there and so we did still get to rub shoulders with them but no we stayed on our own and in those days you went to camp usually around just after September long weekend and a lot of times you were there for I think we were there for almost three weeks most of the time um, so it was pretty pretty neat to to be in New York City or new, not New York City, but, you know, on Long Island. Yeah. Um, and run into New York City once in a while when we had a day off and all that. Being from small towns on the prairies, most of us, it was a real thrill to do that, too. Yeah. No, that's great. That's great. So, I, of course, I have to ask, uh, that first training camp, you know, a lot of times guys are there and they're trying to make an impression. And, uh, you know, you were there with uh, some tough players there. Brian Curran was there, uh, Alan Kerr, Dale Henry. Uh, I think Sharky was there, Richie Pilon. Uh, Dolly was there. Any uh, any scraps uh, try to get noticed? The first year I was there, I, uh, the first camp, I got in a fight. And you might not remember this guy, but Brian Walker, he was, it was in a rookie game. Okay. against the Ranger rookies and those rookie games were ridiculous oh, it yeah. wasn't even hockey wasn't even really <laughs> part of it it was just one fight after another and Brian Walker um, he was a 65 I think he was three years older than me and he laid a dirty licking on me it was the only fight that I had at camp mm-hmm. and he I think he might have broke my nose and I'll never forget because he was kind of I was big so he was kind of picking on me and then when we, and you know, I had to fight him and he beat me up. And then in the penalty box, I could tell he felt bad and he looked over at me and kind of nodded, kind of almost apologetic. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those camps were tough. Funny story about Brian Curran, Terry Clark, like that was after our 17-year-old year of junior. And Brian Colonel was one of the toughest guys in the league yeah. at that time. and. In that Caniac Park, when you hit those boards, they just crashed and made a huge, you know, a huge bang, and they would shake back and forth. They gave a lot, and it was something else because Kerry Clark, he had, oh, he was so frickin', uh, he was just so tough, and he he wanted to make make a make a name for himself, and frick, the puck got dumped into Brian Kern's corner three times, and three times in a row, Sharky just ran him right through the boards, and Colonel jumped up, and to Colonel's defense, he kind of, you know, wondered who this kid was, 
Um, and he kind of let him off the hook a couple times. And then I think the third time they might have had to, he finally thought he better do something about it. This kid was taking advantage of him. And I think Sharky fought him and did okay. But, you know, Brian was probably in his mid-20s to late-20s by that time. Yeah. Kerry was just 18. Um, but that, that that's a good Kerry Clark story, and I'll never forget that. Well, watching him. And then later yeah. on, they became teammates in Portland. Yeah, they won the Calder Cup together yep. there, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They did. They did. Yeah. After uh, after that camp, you went back to Regina. Uh, you played 12 games there, and then you were traded to Prince Albert. Uh, do you know what uh, why you were traded? Uh, was it just a, a player thing? or I know sometimes Western League, they, you know, uh, older guys get traded to teams maybe to help them on a run, but... Uh, do you know uh, what precipitated that trade? Well, we, a new coach came in, and he wasn't very. He he uh, he cleaned house. He traded about eight or nine guys right off the hop, and oh, I wow. was in his. I was in his bad books right from the start. Doug Sauter. Okay. He's he's a famous Western League coach, mm-hmm. and then he coached for a long time in the Central League in Oklahoma City. He also coached in Springfield, actually, when they were Chicago's farm team. But Doug, uh, for whatever reason, he didn't like me, which was fine. Probably the best thing that ever happened in my career was getting traded to Prince Albert. Rick Wilson was there, who was the assistant later on mm-hmm. in New York. Uh, Peter Anhold, Brad Tippett, and we, were, we had a really good team there, and uh, I was a big part of it. You know, I wasn't a main main guy but I I was you know one of the guys that played all the time and contributed and and we had a I had a great two-year career in Prince Albert it was uh it was a great city to play in it was small and our rink was always full and the people loved us there and and, you know I have nothing but fond memories of Prince Albert it was pretty neat because I got to go back last year when Bowen played them in the league final and I got to spend some time there and see my old billets and and uh, see all the pictures on the walls and, and just being in the rink again it's pretty neat so um, I've heard a lot about the Prince Albert flu and uh, when you were on Regina you were on the other side of it but now I was a member of the Raiders the Prince Albert flu is that a real thing well I I would say it probably was like in Regina we had a good team and we were pretty tough so I can honestly say nobody on our team ever got the Prince Albert flu but I'm sure on other teams there was they were it was a small rink there's nowhere to hide and uh, they always had big tough teams and you definitely weren't going into their rink and having an easy time of it so you know, over the course of time, they got quite a reputation. And, and then when I went there, uh, you know, our teams were still good and, and tough. We had Darren Kimball and Reed Simpson and Dean Bram. And I missed Dave and Ken. Dave, they yeah. were there the year before. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a different hit time in history as far as hockey went. It was a different game, and it was... You know, every team had their guys that played physical, and definitely Prince Albert always had a tough team. It was the brand of hockey that the fans enjoyed there, and it was it was just the way you played hockey if you played in Prince Albert, unless you were Mike Madano or Kevin Todd. 
Yeah, well, you also had uh, Rod Dahlman and Richie Pilon on that team with you. Um, I was going to ask you about Mike Medano. Obviously, I focus mostly on the tough guys, but to see a guy like that at that age, just uh, I know in the, the Ken Dryden documentary home game where they, they talk a lot about killer, uh, they, they show games between Saskatoon and, and uh, Prince Albert, and Medano just looks so like fluid out there. He just looks like he's, he's a level above everybody. How, how good was he back then? Well, funny story about Mikey, interesting. I, I got traded to, P, to PA. I was in Medicine Hat, and I I got on a Greyhound bus at 3, three or 4 in the morning and met the Raiders in, in Saskatoon. And I walked up to the bus, and they had a bag of gear for me, and we went in, and it was in the old barn in Saskatoon, and and everyone's introducing themselves and everything else you know how it is when you come to a new team and i'm looking at this kid over in the corner and his ankles are about as big around as my wrist he's got (laughs) these he's got braces on and he he's he's just he looks like he's about 12 years old and i had no idea and neither did anyone else really at the time other than the raiders knew who he was and I thought this kid's gonna get killed tonight, <laughs> and uh, that was, you know, uh, in the old rink in Saskatoon, which also was a small ice surface with not a lot of places to hide. And it was always tough hockey, and I, I thought this poor kid was gonna get killed. Well, he had a full mask on because of his braces, mm-hmm. and uh, man alive, when he went out there and started skating. Um, it was it was amazing to see uh you said fluid no doubt he was fluid he was so smooth tall and lanky and he could skate and shoot the puck um he he was he was the real deal and he was better than everyone else uh you know even as a 16 year old that year he scored 30 goals and then the next year as a 17 year old when he went first overall he was he was amazing, skilled. Uh, he could kind of do it all. He wasn't that big, tough centerman that we just talked about. But as far as skill and speed, uh, I never seen a kid like 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 it at the time. Trevor Linden, I believe, went second that year, maybe to Vancouver. And they they weren't they weren't really even comparable. Trevor was a different player than yeah. Mike. Um, but yeah, Mike was. Mike was amazing, and uh, he's uh, he's a he's a fun guy too. He's got a good sense of humor, and and he's pretty confident, so he's pretty sarcastic. And he was just a good good kid to play with. Yeah, you played with a couple other good kids, and one of those good kids is a friend of mine named Darren Kimball. And uh, yeah. I spoke to Kimby about having you on the show. And I asked him, uh, you know, what the you have anything I should say? And he said that uh, you were part of the morning skate club in Prince Albert with uh, Kimby, Reed Simpson, uh, and a player named Wade uh, but- Butchis or Butchie, yeah, yeah, Butchie. Yeah. And uh, Kimby says that out of the four, you were definitely the slowest. Um, <laughs> so he said you were the slowest. And the other thing he said was they used to rag you all the time about fighting Kelly Chase because he said Chaser would tie you up and you would be so pissed. Oh yeah, Chaser was Chaser was a, a tough guy and he uh 
I always used to end up fighting Chaser because he was in junior Kelly was more like he was a middleweight yeah. and I was always a middleweight so he was kind of but he was tougher than I was uh, even then but yeah he was about as technical smart technical fighter as there was and he'd have me in a pretzel by the time he was done <laughs> with me but um, Darren Kimball funny that same game that I got traded to Saskatoon or to PA and we I met them in Saskatoon I didn't know who Darren Kimball was at the time, but by, before the game was over, I knew who he was. Because yeah. Tony Twisted just came to Saskatoon as an 18-year-old rookie. Yeah. And um, Darren fought Twister, and they had just unbelievable toe-to-toe fights. And Darren got his nose broken. I believe it was that game, and, and I've never seen a nose like that. Like uh, It was totally bent sideways, and it was just... And Darren didn't even seem to feel any pain at all. It was just another day at the office for him. But, uh, yeah, Darren was, uh, he was a lot of fun, pretty loud and and uh, boisterous. And, of course, he's fairly confident, too, so he yeah. was always sarcastic. But uh, he was he was probably one of the toughest guys in the WHL for those two years. You know, there was probably yeah. six or seven or eight guys that were the the big guys and then Rito bringing up Rito Rito came on Rito fought everyone that year took his beatings and then in his last two years he was the king of the castle in the Western League he got tough too uh, so is Kimby right when he says you were the slowest of the four well I, I would kind of argue that I think <laughs> I was probably the fastest of the four but uh, I don't know for sure but I, I do know I was faster than Gumball but. <laughs> so but you know a funny thing about Darren uh, it's not funny it's just interesting he scored 35 goals his last year of junior like he he had great hands and he could score he was he was pretty skilled for a tough player for a tough guy um, Darren is one of my favorite players of all time and I trumpet that guy any chance I can get because you know, obviously, for, for some like myself, I'm not the only lunatic out there that loves the fighting and, and, and you know, sort of really gets into it. And I, I've always felt like um, certain guys always get more, uh, get their tires pumped more than others. And I always said, and I, I say this, and I say it all the time, for a guy with his resume, I still don't think he gets enough credit for the guys he's fought, everything he's done. And uh, so, and he's, he's been, he recently, maybe in the last two years, he, he uh went on Twitter, so I think now he's kind of putting himself out there, he has a uh, he has a podcast with Jamie Rivers uh, St. Louis Blues podcast, um, and I think he's out there now, but uh, just for, you know, watching this guy I'm like, this guy really should get more credit, more more you know, publicity, whatever whatever you want to say, then he gets and, and, I, and I'll say that till I'm blue in the face, I mean, I always he is one guy I will always try to talk up because I don't think he gets enough credit for what he's done. No, he doesn't. You know, every time, uh, you know, we get on the subject um, of, of hockey and tough guys and fighters, he is still one of the toughest guys. And I played with a lot of guys that were tough, you know, being in the Islander system and, and all the Westerners they drafted mm -hmm. in those years. Um and Darren's right up there with the toughest. He, 
And when he went pro, he even took it to another level when he started throwing lefts. Um, he, you know, I just have all the respect for yeah. Darren in the world as far as a tough, tough guy. But he could also play, and that's yeah. what kind of got lost in it all. But no, Darren, Darren's as tough as they come. And once in a while, Bowen and I'll, I'll get, we'll get going on YouTube hockey fights, and I'll mm -hmm. get get him watching Darren fight. And uh, they're sure entertaining fights, and, and yeah, once again, he was a killer. He, uh, he, you know, that probably part of the reason Darren didn't get, uh, you know, could have got more credit. Uh, uh, he got he got injured a couple times. That I think I don't know when he got in the vehicle accident, yeah. but he he got hurt, mm -hmm. and I don't think he was ever the same. His hands were always bad, even. In yeah, you know that was what happened with Dino too, right? The yeah. hands were always banged up, and and uh, sometimes your your career ends a little sooner than it can, or you don't fight as much because you're you're sore and you're injured. And um, but uh, definitely, I'm with you with Darren. We called he had lots of nicknames, but Gumball <laughs> for some reason we we called him Gumball a lot, so I'll call him Gumball. He was uh, he was just great to have you know i don't know how much you want me to babble on here. babble away man babble but away when we were going to play we i think we played we played for sure we played 72 games a 72 game season and i think we played saskatoon 12 times i might be wrong but i think we played them 12 times and the whole <clears throat> northern from saskatoon north uh, was was excited about those games because you knew Twister and Darren would fight yeah. a couple times a game, usually once for sure, maybe twice. Yeah. And uh, man, it was entertaining, tough hockey. You know, everyone else had their dance partners too, but that mm -hmm. was the main event, and everyone looked looked forward to it. And you know, it was pretty darn uh, it was pretty darn uh, entertaining hockey to watch. Yeah, and by the way, feel free to babble on as much as you want because, you know, this is stuff, one of the reasons why I do this show is because I don't really, I'm not in love with the way the game is, uh, let's say, developed, so I love hearing old stories about the way, like, this is stuff that's right in my wheelhouse, I love hearing these stories, so there's no amount of babbling that you could do, and I don't call it babbling, I'm just using your word, that would yeah. be like, come on, man, so seriously, just go for it because... I'm in my glory right now, so uh, yeah. so go for well, it. Well, another interesting thing about Darren that I'll say, and then we'll probably have to move on to other <laughs> subjects. So Darren was also probably, well, he might be tougher on the street than he was on the ice. Oh, I'm, a lot yeah. of times, a lot of times at the parties, uh, bush parties or house parties, people would uh, want to try Darren Kimball, right? And they never usually made out very well he usually cleaned them up pretty good he was on he was on a podcast called fight stories and and their their podcast they don't just do hockey fighting they, they do all sorts of uh fighting whether it's street fighting or martial arts or boxing and he was on there and he told a few of those uh, off ice uh, stories and very colorful very interesting yeah he had a few we had a one of our scouts from the team and i don't know if you'd remember this or not but maybe it's built up maybe it's it maybe it's not true but i'm pretty sure it was true that we had the and i 
we have this one scout that worked. There's a maximum security penitentiary in Prince Albert, and uh, he was a uh, the scout of ours was a was a a guard there, and he 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 warned Darren one time to stay home because this guy was coming out of the pen, and he wanted to try Darren Kimball. I don't know if Darren would verify that story or not. But, oh yeah. Uh, Anyways, it was a tough uh, area. Lots of guys liked the street fight. Darren, Darren would never say no to a good fight. <laughs> Rod Dolman's a hell of a street fighter too, by the way. He, you wouldn't want to mess with Dolly on the street. Well, I hope to get him on the show one day. I could definitely ask him about that. You, I mean, yeah. Kim B. Dolly, I love those guys. So, uh, you know, and I think he... He might be a guard. I know he was uh, a corrections officer for a bit. Is he a guard at that prison, do you know? No, he's not. Last year when I was there, we actually, another guy from our team, Troy Neumeyer, he mm. works there and he's a guard. And we actually got a tour of of, uh, of the pen with uh, Troy. And no, Rod doesn't work there. I should know where the hell he works now, mm. but uh, I don't remember. He he actually texted me while he was there. They were having um, some uh, issues they had to deal with, mm. uh, and I didn't get to see him. But he had he did text me quick and just apologize for not getting to the games and seeing Bowen play and the team. But no, I I don't know if he was in real estate or. Um, what he's doing now yeah. for money, but uh, he'll be successful at whatever he does. Yeah, Rod, he's a good man. Definitely. So um, we go to eighty-seven, eighty-eight. Your second camp with the Islanders. So some of those tough players that we mentioned from last season are there, and now you had guys like Dean Chenouth, Dean Ewan, uh, Mick Lakota, Rob DeMaio are there, and the, like you said, the Islanders always manage to find tough players from the Western League. So the training camps were always exciting for someone like myself. And, it, you know, as if last year's camp wasn't tough enough, now you throw in those four guys. Um, so, and now this is your second camp. So any memories from that second camp when you, um, you have some of these new guys there? Well, once again, most of those, uh, most of those rookie games... You know, it's it's getting to be 30 some years ago yeah. but those rookie games like you didn't sleep for about a week before those games started that's my biggest yeah. memory of, of those camps um well this season there was a rookie game um this is the infamous rookie game and out of all the fight videos i've ever made and all the fight videos i've ever watched this is the the most infamous rookie game that i'm aware of i under ranger rookie game at the coliseum in the afternoon of a game, you know, the night game Islanders-Rangers, and this game had uh, Mick Vakoda, Mark Tenorti, it had Dean Ewan, Rudy Poshek, uh, Sharky fought uh, Don Herxeg, um, and I didn't know if you ended up <laughs> with anyone in that game, but that was the game where every, from all accounts, the first period took over an hour to play, and when you guys were in the locker room, Bob Nystrom came in with a big smile on his face and basically said something like, okay, now... We have to show it, show them if any of you guys can play hockey or something to that effect. Uh, I'm yeah. assuming you played in that game. Yeah, I, I usually got stuck in those games. You kind of hope you would miss out on the odd one. But I was in that game. I remember Sharky fighting her sig and, yeah. and all the fights. I don't think I fought that game, but mm -hmm. I don't remember now for yeah. sure. 
it's been a long time. But yeah. uh, no, those rookie games were, you know, there's lots of things about the game now that I wish um, that I that I wish there was a, a little more physicality for the entertainment side. Yeah. But I I'm glad Bowen doesn't have to play in games like we were in in those rookie games because they were. They weren't really about hockey, and it was, it was, you know, anybody that says they weren't a little bit scared before those games isn't telling you the truth. I'm sure. And uh, it, it was entertaining, and and but it was over the top, really. It didn't have yeah. to be that way, but it's how it was. So when um, when you went back to Prince Albert, um. You ended up now. You and, and Sharky were teammates in Regina. Then you go, you know, you end up in Prince Albert. He ends up in Saskatoon. And I know this season you had at least one fight. Uh, and since you guys were buddies, our buddies, do you remember fighting Sharky uh, when he was a blade and you were a raider? Yeah, <laughs> and it was funny because uh, it was a line brawl, and him and I ended up rolling around like we didn't actually go like toe-to-toe we kind of grabbed on and then we fell down and, and he freaking bit me <laughs> i don't know if he told you that but he he left a great big welt on my stomach no way and it's, fun, and it's funny because after games you usually you know you kind of meet up with your friends on the other team and <clears throat> quietly have a quick little visit because you're not totally supposed to be nice to the other players but we'd always have a quick little visit it's funny sharky Sharky comes out and he's got this funny smile on his face and he's laughing and talking about biting me and I said, Sharky, you, you know, I could have got you suspended for that. You left yeah. a great big bloody welt on my stomach. Um, but he thought it was pretty funny anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. So, so the next season, you now 88-89, your first year pro, um, most of the season was set, set with, uh, spent with Springfield. But you did end up playing one game in Indianapolis. Now, I think that was a secondary affiliate for the Islanders. Uh, did you start the year in Indianapolis, or how did that go that you ended up there for one game? No, what happened was was I, had, I was in Springfield. Um, I started in Springfield and ended up staying there. And I had sat out, me and Doug Reese had sat out for like, for I don't know, two months straight. So... They wanted us to get a little bit of ice time, so they sent us down to Indianapolis just for a weekend to mm-hmm. play a couple games. Okay. And when we got there, they wanted defensemen, so I think I played one game and sat out, and I don't even know if Dougie played. I can't remember now. <laughs> but anyways, it was quite an entertaining place. Um, that was kind of before a lot of number one affiliates went to the eye. They were yeah. kind of... It was better than the East Coast League, but it wasn't quite a, a, at the American League level. Um, but there was some characters there. Boy, Archie Henderson was the coach, yeah. and uh, and a bunch of other guys that were kind of on the tail end of their uh, pro careers. Dave Allison, I don't know if you remember yeah. Dave mm-hmm. Allison. He coached uh, he coached Ottawa, the Ottawa Senators. He was there playing. Yeah. Uh, Graham Bonner, Jimmy Mann, the old tough yep. guy from the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah. Uh, it was quite a, it was, it was a good weekend. And actually we played Peoria and uh, Twister and Chaser were playing on Peoria. That was, oh. uh, 
so I got to see them play again after a year or two and not seeing them so uh, but uh, no I didn't play in Indianapolis for the year it was just a weekend thing yeah. to get some ice time and uh, so that's your first year pro you you played 45 games in Springfield you actually had your career high in penalty minutes that year 195 penalty minutes so was that a case now and you played with some pretty tough guys in that Springfield team uh, you know Dolly uh, Sharky Kerry Clark Cush was there Dale Henry uh, Mike Stevens DeMaio later in the year Dean Ewan joins the team um, Duncan McPherson so um, is that a case of you whenever you're getting your opportunity to get into games uh, trying to make a name for yourself trying to establish yourself because it's tough enough to do that in a new league it's got to be tougher to do it when half of your team also plays a similar style yeah I guess you know it's 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 funny how uh, how everybody's got a bit of a different story to be honest I knew I had to fight because I was big and strong and I wasn't gonna get 50 goals so I kind of <laughs> knew I had to fight but I didn't really go into the season thinking I was going to make a name for myself any or anything like that. I was just kind of trying to survive. And most of the time the fights came to me just because I was big. Mm-hmm. And uh, we used to get we used to get these, these lineup sheets with statistics before the games in our dressing room. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure everyone would look and see who had penalty minutes and who didn't and who they might want to try to fight or whatever so I always had a few penalty minutes and I was big so the tough guys on the other team usually came looking for me and they'd give me a spank and before they got to, <laughs> before they got to our tough guys because we had lots of them and I'm sure they were racing to get to me so they didn't have to fight you know the frickin <laughs> eight or nine or ten tough guys we had that were legitimate heavyweights you know yeah well, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure you were legitimate too. The stuff, that's why I'm, uh, you know, been a fan of yours because I mean, you could do other things, but you could hold your own in the scraps too. Yeah, I, I, I like I said, I was a middleweight. I wasn't yeah. he- a heavyweight, but I, you know, it was such a ego-driven thing back then. Yeah, um, and that's the one thing I do think is good that it's not in the game anymore. Is mm-hmm. the fighting just for no reason? As entertaining as it was. Um, it's dangerous and it's it's uh, it, it, it was just not always really needed it wasn't part you know of the game you know it was just almost set up but uh, anyways it was it was definitely entertaining and, and we had lots of uh, people that could entertain on our team in Springfield that's for sure um, so one guy I want to ask you about specifically, and I ask everybody who played with him, who unfortunately, uh, Duncan McPherson, he's not with us anymore. Um, what were your recollections, what are your recollections of playing with Duncan? Well, actually, uh, actually, um, that's, that's a good question. Duncan was probably, probably one of the most unique guys I ever played with and I never really played with him that long because he got sent away the, my first year pro Okay. I don't know if he was in Indianapolis or where he ended up but, but I did get to know him fairly well through all the training camps and that he was a very unique guy he had a very dry sense of humor he had um, 
He had a real sarcastic sense of humor. Um, he was a little bit of a loner. Like, he liked doing his own thing and going off on his own. Like, he would hang out with the guys, but he went and did his, did his own thing a lot, too. And I think that was probably partially what happened to him overseas, I think. I shouldn't say for sure. But yeah. he did a lot of uh, neat things on his own. Like, he liked biking and doing all sorts of stuff. And he was a tough guy. Like, he's another guy. Um, that uh, was underrated as far as toughness. He'd take anybody on at any time, and he played hard. Probably the worst thing that ever happened to Duncan was being a first-rounder because it put a lot of pressure on him. Yeah. Um, you know, he he was a good player, but, uh, you know, he probably, probably wished a lot of times he would have been just a third or fourth rounder like the rest of us, right, because mm -hmm. there wouldn't have been that pressure that he'd have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we go to the next season now. Your fourth training camp with the Islanders was your first training camp with Al Arbor, uh, if I'm not mistaken. I, I think the other camp chat, Terry Simpson, was there. Um, and Al Arbor here and these parts around here, the guy's a legend. Um, and I know later on you played some games on the island, but what were your first impressions of Al? My first impressions of Al where everything, you know how sometimes your first impressions in real life, you're disappointed or you're, they're not really what you thought. Yeah. Um, he was everything that I thought he'd be. He was a strong personality, a strong figure, but fair. And, um, you know, he treated everyone with respect, but he expected a certain level of professionalism also. Yeah. Um, just a quality, quality guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this season was interesting. Um, maybe at the time it didn't seem very interesting. Uh, but as I told you, I did ask some players about you. And uh, obviously, you know, Dean Ewan and I are very close. And the one thing Dean said that he never, he never asked either one of you guys why. And I did ask Sharky, and he didn't remember. But Dean told me that one in practice, you, Dino, and Sharky were playing on a line doing drills. And he said the two, you and Sharky just fought three times doing the same drill. And he has no idea why. But now I'm wondering, <laughs> now I'm wondering, and Sharky doesn't remember, but now I'm wondering if it has anything to do with the biting incident. No, it didn't. You know, it's funny when you, you talk about fighting teammates in practice. It happened, it happened, um, fairly often in those days you get under each other's skin there was a lot of poking and teasing and and stuff that would get you know carried away and people would go too far and it would kind of bubble over onto the ice i don't know for sure what that would have been about maybe we were pissed off at each other about something that happened when we lived together but it wasn't anything that was a you know anytime that happened like I fought uh, Dale Kushner one time in practice, too, and I don't know what the heck that was about. <laughs> um, just, it's it's kind of hard to explain. And you know what, whenever that happened, I fought Richie Pilon and Prince Albert one time. I fought Darren Kimball in practice one time. Mm -hmm. um, sounds like I was fighting a lot of my teammates. I don't know what the heck well, I was you, you didn't pick small guys, that's for sure. <laughs> but, uh, no, I... 
it was even, you know, the coaches, some of the coaches even encouraged it and liked it. They thought we were more intense or they thought that we were, uh, you know, adding uh, something to practice. We were practicing for keeps or whatever, right? So yeah. it was never anything that boiled over into the room. Or You might not talk to each other for a couple of days, but it would go go away after a while when someone broke the ice. So there was no real reason for that, but I do remember that. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, uh, Sharky probably beat me up. He was a pretty tough guy. <laughs> well, yeah, when I brought it up to him, he didn't remember. And uh, and it was funny because I, I texted Dean, and he goes, oh, you got to ask him. He goes, you know, all of a sudden they start fighting, and then they break it up, and then... We're getting ready to go again, and they start fighting again, and they get broken up, and then we're getting ready to do the drill again, and the third time, he goes, I'm just standing there, and I go, you probably were upset that you didn't have anyone to dance with. I said, you probably <laughs> probably felt left out, and he goes, I just, I never, I never asked why they did it, and I said, well, so when I interviewed Sharky, he didn't remember and I said, well, when I when I speak to you, I'll find out. But uh, but he said that's the one thing he just he'll never forget that day, just being out there doing the drills and you guys going at it three times. Oh, it's it, you know when you think back on it, it was foolishness once again. It was a bit of a chest beating thing, and everyone wanted to be the tough tough player. And uh, yeah, it was real really for no reason. Oh, that's all right. It was. I don't know yeah. if maybe. Uh, who knows? Maybe he gave me a bad pass, and I <laughs> told him to smarten up or something. It, it could be something as simple as, you know, as innocent as that. One guy makes a bad pass, and you say something to him, and then he tells you to f off, and before you know it, you're fighting. You know, in the minors, uh, in the minors, you're kind of in. It's a weird, uh, a weird. I don't know what you'd call it, a weird concept, because you're all trying to make the NHL, but you're on the same team. It's it's actually, you know, a little contradictory, right? You're yeah. trying to make the NHL, but you're trying to win on the team you're on, but you're trying to get called up ahead of the other guys. So that was part of it, too. There was anxiety and stress a little bit over that, too, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that season... Um, you actually spent some time in the East Coast League in Johnstown. So um, one of the guys that I uh, that I reached out to, one of your teammates, now you, I mean, you went down there, eight games, ten points, 35 pims. One of the guys I reached out to was Doug the Thug Smith to see uh, about his memories of playing with you. So I'll, uh, I'll tell you what he said. He said um, he got to play a few games with you when you came down from the AHL said uh, you were roommates on a road trip. Uh, he said, good-sized kid. Although you didn't fight a lot, you were still a good fighter and very underrated. He said you had a couple of bouts in the games you played together, and you felt like you guys complimented each other very well. And he said that uh, Coach Carlson, who I'll ask you about, like definitely liked both of you. He said he appreciated that you were very good to him because he was still young and raw, but you give him pointers and advice on fighting and situations. So he loved you for that. Um, he said... Uh, he thought you fought a little more down there because you wanted to get out of there and go back up to Springfield, uh, you know, get called back up again, which you did. Um, and then um, he said he appreciates your friendship. He's not sure if you knew uh, knew about his story and how late in the game he started. And um, 
you know, and he said he's not even sure you put the connection together later on with his book and the movie, but uh, he wanted to say hello, and he's hope, he hopes that you're doing well. Oh, cool. That's good. Say hi to him, uh, too, or I don't know if you'll hear this or not, but that's neat. Yeah, it's a name from the past, a blast from the past. It was, uh, it was pretty, uh, well, once again, it was a unique place to end up. I think once again that year I sat out a couple months in a row and Jim Roberts was sick of having me around, so he <laughs> sent me to Johnstown. We had got Greg Parks from Johnstown, so there was kind of a connection, so uh jimmy kind of set it up that i would go play for a while with them and uh you know with the with the slap shot uh you know connection with the movie yeah. and all that and the rink and the coach and it, it was actually really a fun time you don't always enjoy things as much as you should because you know you're you're getting demoted so yeah. you're not totally happy with it but you make the best of it. The people there were really nice. Uh, the rink was unique, to yeah. say the least. Um, yeah, it was. It was a good time, and I do remember uh, Doug too. And and uh, and we we did lots of traveling on the bus there. Like the short amount of time I was there, we were on the bus a lot. So because um, you went all over the country in that league. Yeah. So uh, we got to know, you know, you got to know everyone on the team fairly quickly because of that. So, so um, that, that actually, I think, is the year we won the Calder Cup. I yep. went back after the season in Johnstown ended, mm. and then uh, the team caught fire, and we ended up winning the Cup that year. Yes. Now, I always want. I always ask this or wondered this. Now, for me, I'm a fan never played it was never my living i you know so i always wonder for a player now obviously like you said you, you, you set me up perfectly you you're in springfield so you want to go up you don't want to go down and fortunately you didn't spend too much time in johnstown but I, like you said it's a storied franchise uh, you know everybody knows the johnstown chiefs because you were only there for a little bit of time was there a party that actually thought like said it was kind of cool because they're the Johnstown Chiefs. Now, I'm not saying if you spent 10 years there, you'd feel the same way, but even even for a little bit, was it kind of cool, just like the history with the team? You played with the historical franchise in Springfield, and now you're playing in Johnstown. So I always think as a fan, like for me, I would be like, wow, this is great, I'm a Johnstown Chief. But for a player, do you have the same kind of feelings? Um, not at the time. I yeah. think at the time you're disappointed and... You always think you're better than you are, so you think you should be another level higher. Right. Um, you make the best of it and, and all that. But I think later on in life, like now, I'm glad I went there and seen and experienced that. Um, it was a really cool life experience. Um, so probably more now than then, mm -hmm. I appreciate it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Now, uh, you did play for Steve. Carlson and uh, so what was that like I'm assuming you were his kind of player uh, I think so I I played okay while I was there and, and he of course likes uh, rough and tough hockey it was pretty funny when I I'm just trying to remember where the heck I'm, I'm I met them it might have been in Nashville or somewhere I flew and I was supposed to meet with him and I knocked on the door 
in his hotel, on, on his hotel, his hotel room door, and he opened the door and he looked exactly like he did in the movie. And of course, you played with uh, well, you played with Lilo the Lion Jr. And now, was Leo the Lion with the team when you were in Johnstown? Um, I think. Geez, that's a good question. Yeah. Now, was Lee there? I I don't think he was there by then. I think he might have even have been coaching in Yorkton by that time. I might be off with my dates and all yeah. that, but mm-hmm. I don't think Lee was there at that time. But I might be wrong. I, I might be wrong, but I don't remember him being there. But I knew he did play there. Yeah. One time for sure. So when you go back to Springfield and the team goes on that run and eventually wins the Calder Cup, um, is that something? Now, now you didn't play any games in the playoffs, but you did. You did play thirty games during the season. So is it still something you can appreciate, uh, even though you didn't get to see any playoff action? Um. Yeah. I, I mean, once again, it's one of those things. You're happy, but you're disappointed I went back and I, I think I played a couple games before the season ended because Jimmy wanted to sit out some guys and rest them for the playoffs yeah and uh, and then once the playoffs came I never got um, into any action I, I don't even think I was on the playoff roster in those days they used to bring back ex NHL guys and ex pros from you that were playing in Europe the good American League teams making a run would add guys. Right. And that year we added uh, Dave Pacine. Yeah. And I think we added a couple more. But, geez, by the time we got to the playoffs that year, um, we had 30, probably 30 players. Wow. And you could only dress 10 forwards and 60 and two goalies. So we had a whole – we basically at times had two practices – and there was times in the, that we actually took two buses, believe it or not. Wow! And uh, and it was it was exciting because we were winning, and of course you ha- you're a team guy, so you have to act like you're happy. Um, kind of knowing that most of us weren't going to get in the lineup, we had a lot of fun away from the rink, if you know what I mean. Of course, and it was a lot of fun that run. We were yeah. partying hard, and. and uh, and then to watch the guys playing as well as they were. And then Jimmy was taking his, you know, being the black aces, he was taking his life frustrations out on us. We were skating hard. We were getting bagged every day. But we had a, we had a lot of fun and a lot of good guys. Um, so even though we did play and contribute, we did contribute to the, you know, to the, to the feeling uh, of teamness and togetherness and uh, and the fun part of it. So uh, it was disappointing not to play, but we sure had a lot of fun. So it was another one of those life experiences where you wouldn't trade for anything, yeah. um, but it would have been nice to be more of a part of it as okay. far as the playing part. But. Yeah. Um, so the next season, uh, the Islanders moved their affiliate from Springfield uh, to Troy Capital District. And this season, uh, you find yourself in a position where I don't think you found yourself before. Um, you were uh, arguably the toughest forward on the team. Dean Ewan was hurt. He missed the season. And uh, the team had Kevin Day off Dean Chenault, but their defenseman, 
Okay, Alan Kerr, I think, was up and down that year uh, with the Islanders and with CDI. A uh, guy like Wayne Doucette, he's a feisty player too. Derek Laxwell, probably more of a hitter. Uh, you Now, there was there weren't other guys. Like, you, you come from those Springfield teams, and even going back to Prince Albert, where you're maybe uh, third or fourth or fifth on the list of guys, and now uh, you're probably the toughest forward out there. So, And I think your fight card shows that. Um, I see you fought, like, Rudy Poshek. Danny Vial, Mark Potvin, um, Mike Stuthers, Bill Armstrong. So I, you fought a lot of tough players down there. Um, so did you notice that too, that all of a sudden, the, as far as the forward core went, uh, all of a sudden it's pretty much you and that's it? Yeah. Um, Robbie Sell, Rob DeMaio was up, I think, for about... I wouldn't want to say 100%, but Mostly. I think he was up for half the year. Yeah. So, and Dolly, Rod Dolman had signed, and Kush both went to Philadelphia, I believe. They yeah. signed with Philly. Mm -hmm. um, Dale Henry was gone. Uh, yeah, there. most of our, uh, Kerry Clark was gone. Yeah. Um, Dino was there, but he had the hand troubles. He was hurt, the poor guy. Yeah. Every time he got going, he would get in a fight and hurt his hand again. So, yeah, it wasn't always all that fun to be the guy because whenever anyone wanted to get their pims up, they came to me, and, and I was trying to play. And mm. um, But, you know, that's the way it goes. But we did have Chevy, and we had Chinny. Yeah. Um, both very underrated, very tough guys. Um, both of them lefties, actually. Yeah. Um, uh, so we, we we had a kind of a committee toughness of you know by committee, but we didn't really have that one heavyweight just because Dino was hurt. Um, yeah. It it ended up working out fine for me personally because I had the best year of hockey I ever had. Yeah, you had a point of game. Actually. Yeah, and I got called up and 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 all that. So uh, it was a great year for hockey. We weren't very good, and it was a disappointing uh, start to the CDI um, organization. We never drew worth worth hell, and yeah. we never won. Uh, I don't think we made. We didn't make the playoffs that year. I don't think. I don't so. Know. So it was it was disappointing team wise, but it was good personally for me and and yeah the you know the physical part of the game uh, I had to do a little bit more of that year because we lost all those guys and everybody was probably frothing at the mouth to get me after I hit behind all those other guys for two years. <laughs> One of the things that and I spoke to to Dean about this. Uh, it, it always makes me laugh about uh, the arena there because uh, CDI played at uh, RPI's arena, and RPI is an engineering school. Uh, so you figure the guy who designed the arena might be a pretty smart guy, but the one thing I always laughed at was, as the home team, when you guys went off the ice, you went behind the net. And the, yeah. the road team would have to actually go through your bench. And yeah. uh, as I was doing the video uh, research for this, I see this incident where you're playing Springfield and there's kind of a thing going on. I think Brian Chapman was involved and uh, a couple other guys. And now all of a sudden Chapman wants to come off the ice and Sarge, Chris Pryor, stands basically at the door to the bench 
and he almost dares him to, to get him out of the way to go to the locker room. And uh, I don't know if you remember that incident, but I always laugh thinking, why in the world would you make the visiting team come through the home team's bench? You were just asking for trouble. Yeah, funny that. It actually was, if that rink would have been filled with fans, it was actually a pretty cool old rink. Yeah. Um, some of the small parts of it, yeah, were a little bit odd. And, and not, but it, 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 it had a really big ice surface and good ice. So uh, it was a fun rink to play in, other than it was empty all the time. There wasn't much for, um, you know, atmosphere, but, but it was a good rink to play in otherwise. Yeah. Uh, a lot of that year, you played with uh, Greg Parks and uh, Alan Kerr when he was down there. Uh, that's a pretty good line. Uh, I mean, that's a pretty good line in the NHL. It's a really good line in the American League. Uh, did, you, did you enjoy playing with those guys? Yeah. Uh, Alan Kerr had already had a full almost career in the NHL, and he scored 20 goals one year. He played hard and yeah. finished his checks, and, and and he was a physical player that could finish. And Parksy, well, he was um, – Parksy was – probably as good of a minor league player as there ever was he he was dominating he uh you know he came in the year before when we won the cup and you know once he got established and once he got comfortable oh he proved over and over that he was a great player uh at that level he was so you know that helped me a ton then he spent some time in new york i actually got to play with some other really good players that year. I played a kid that uh, really helped my my season there was Sean Lebrun, uh, yeah. very underrated skill-wise. Uh, I scored three or four tap-ins that year on two-on-ones with Brunner. I just had to go to the net, leave my stick on the ice, and he'd, he'd find a way to get it to me. Um, Brunner was... Uh, one of the higher skilled guys probably on that team he just never seemed to to get a real good chance to play for a good amount of time yeah so yeah that the line the you know another guy that played on on that line a lot with parks he was Derek Laxdahl and yeah. Laxey Laxey could shoot the puck a ton yeah he was smart with the puck and he could skate he he was a good player too so that year, I was really lucky. I always had good line mates that uh, definitely made it a lot easier for me to be successful. And, uh, you know, it, it, that season actually extended my career for whatever. That was my third year. I think I played 14 years or something. So it, if it wasn't for that season, I probably would have been done. And I probably would have been, uh, you know, looking for a new career. And well, a lot, a lot, a lot of the success I had individually was, you know, I got to play with the players and got a chance to play. Well, I'm glad it worked out. I would, uh, I, yeah. I didn't have to start in the mines uh, earlier than yeah, uh, than exactly, you did. Yeah. So um, Dave Chizowski told me an interesting story that you used to do, um, and and you mentioned it earlier about uh, getting the lineup sheets with the stats and everything. And uh, Chizer said uh, you used to go through the lineups while you're getting dressed before the game and read out who's playing on the other team. And the example he gave, you'd say something like, holy fuck, Dennis Vial's playing. I thought he was hurt. 
The guy's an animal. <laughs> Keep your head up out there. And he said you would do it with every tough guy on every team. And he said tra- guys like Travis Green would just somehow pull their groin in the warm-up. Do you remember doing that? <laughs> oh, yeah. Like I said, that was part of the whole, you have your your uh, pregame routine, and, and most of us would get a cup of coffee poured and go into the middle of the dressing room and stretch, you know, on the floor or whatever, and you'd have your, you'd have that, that sheet, like it was a full game report yep. it wasn't just one sheet it was the lineup and then it went through all the different statistics and the league statistics and then the team statistics and all the interest it was a media yeah the, it, it was probably what they put in the, the scout room or yeah. the media room too mm-hmm. and uh yeah we'd go through that and of course the guys that knew they might have to fight were always looking to see who got called up and sent down and You'd always be kind of happy if, if, you know, the resident tough guy got called up or mm. was sick or wasn't playing or whatever. You wouldn't be all that disappointed if they weren't <laughs> playing. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. So uh, how did you learn? You, you were fortunate enough to end up playing four games for the Islanders that year. Uh, how did you learn of your call-up? Actually, my mom and my aunt were visiting in Troy, New York that weekend and uh geez i can't remember now um how the heck i actually if butchie told me at the rink or if he called i think he might have called me at home and it was it was interesting because they called i think they called four or five of us up at the same time tom fitzgerald myself uh chris Pryor might have went up that mm-hmm. time I can't remember now. Chris might have went up. Sarge. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bunch of us. Dino Shouth went up. Yeah. And I'll never forget. Funny story is we get we get to Philadelphia, and we're gonna play in the Spectrum, and we we meet the team in the hotel, and we show up just on time for pregame meal, and I was pretty shy. Yeah. And nervous and everything else. Yeah. We frickin' get in there, and all the, the, the whole team's already eating, and I look, and there's two seats left, one with some players, and the other one's right beside with the coach is Bill Torrey, or, I mean, Al Arbor. <laughs> I can't even remember who the assistant coach might be, Lauren Henning. Maybe. Um, and I'm getting my food quick because I don't want to have to go sit in that seat. And I was so happy because Dino got his plate filled and he went directly and he sat there because Dino grew up with you know in hockey Mm -hmm. his dad and all that he wasn't nervous around all these guys but I was so nervous that he would take the seat with the players and I'd have to frickin go sit with the coaches but I was lucky (laughs) and he said Dino Dino got his plate full and went and sat there so that kind of saved my bacon so what's that like your first NHL game Playing the Flyers, you know, a team that you knew all about growing up, being a hockey fan, playing in a in a historic arena like the Spectrum. Uh, what I mean, was that overwhelming or what? Yeah, it was. Like I said, I grew up a hockey fanatic, and these guys weren't human to me. So to skate around and warm up uh, in the Spectrum and look over at all the guys like. Uh, Philadelphia was huge back then. Their team, 
I guarantee you almost every guy was my size. Yeah. Um, they were a big, strong, tough team. Um, but just to be skating around out there and then looking across and seeing, you know, a lot of those guys, you know, were playing when I was a kid watching, right? Like, uh, I think Senesalo was playing and yeah. Hextall and, and, um, I think Brian Prop might have been playing Talkit, yeah, Ulan, like all those guys were playing, and I had watched them, you know, as a as a you know younger kid. So it was uh, it's hard to explain um, to someone that never really you know really had the fire to do that. Yeah, but. Um, it's it's sure a thrill to play even you know even one game it's definitely would have been nice to have a full career but it was sure pretty cool to and it was a good place to play yeah um, your first game um, the spectrum was a, a great you know a great arena to play in and I was lucky on that trip because we played in Boston too the next night and uh, so I got to play in Boston Garden too and wow was that place something else not, it wasn't anything like what I had expected at all it was old and man I could almost reach up and t touch that first row on the upper deck it was yeah. right up above your head almost it felt like but anyways I got to play in a couple cool rinks on that trip anyways Al Arbor made me go get a haircut <laughs> now yeah. um, Dean Chanel said uh, one thing he remembers is uh, and he said it was in Boston um, that you nearly went out uh, with your white helmet on and not your road blue helmet. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah, when I, <laughs> yeah and uh, I think actually Wayne McBean saved me and everyone got pissed off at Beaner. Because <laughs> you know how you're always trying to get guys to do stupid things? You're not oh, going to say nothing. Absolutely. Like they do that with, the, with the rookies when they go racing out there and then no one goes or whatever for warm-up. Yeah. So they were all looking at each other, giggling, watching me with, I guess it would have been my white helmet, because yeah. we came from Tro from Troy, so I had all my gear and yeah. colored helmets and everything to be ready. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I had my white helmet on and I was all ready to go, and Beaner laughed and said, Bizey, you got the, the wrong helmet on. So everyone was pissed off at Beaner for being a meathead and screwing the screwing the 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 funny uh the trick it would have been on me but it ended up everyone was pissed off at beaner for ruining it anyways and uh you had 14 penalty minutes in those games at the islanders and 12 of them were in boston uh you got uh 10 minute misconduct and two minutes for high sticking well who'd you high stick Geez, who did I high stick? I don't remember now who the heck it was, but it, I know there was a little scuffle on our bench, and I think it was Bob Sweeney. Mm -hmm. uh, and I ended up, I don't know how I ended up with a 10-minute misconduct, but I did anyways. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember who I got the high sticking on, but that was a real thrill to play there. Yeah. And it was pretty neat because both Philly and... Uh, both in Philly and Boston, I played a regular shift with Brent Sutter and Mick. Nice. And uh, we played against Tockett's line pretty well the whole game in Philly, and then we played against uh, K 
Cam Neely, and I was playing left wing, so I lined up against Cam Neely quite a bit in that game. You didn't have to rough him up, did you? No, no, he didn't bother me, and talk it didn't bother me either. I kind of thought, well, they wouldn't fight with me. They had bigger <laughs> and better things to do. But um, So it was kind of neat to get a chance to play against those guys. And um, you did play uh, at the Coliseum. It was your second, I think it was your second NHL game. I might be wrong, but uh, I thought it was the second NHL game you played uh, Buffalo at the Coliseum. Now, obviously, for someone like myself, I hold the Coliseum in very high regard. Uh, so you got to play in some pretty cool rinks. And uh, what was that like playing in, uh, in the Coliseum where so many great things that, uh, happened for the organization? Oh, it was a thrill to play in the Coliseum. You know, all the rinks, you know, were, you know, they seemed like, like new rinks like big you know they were full of people and the ice was different and the plexi plexiglass was clean and so the, all the rinks we played in seemed you know nice and the coliseum uh with all that history um the only difference was was i'd been in the coliseum quite a bit in training camps yeah. and rookie games and everything so it wasn't quite as big a deal as being in boston garden in philly but right. uh yeah, we played. That was actually the third game that I was there. Okay. And I played. Uh, we played Buffalo, and uh, that was when Howard Chuck was there, and Benoit Hogue, and Huey Croup, and Clint Malarchuk. And I'm still pissed off to this day because I could have had about three goals, and I never ended up with one. It was probably the best game I played the whole season, and it was against Buffalo, and I had some really good chances to score and just didn't quite get didn't come didn't happen but uh it was a thrill to to play and and play well and get a chance to to get comfortable um so unfortunately you did end up going back down the capital district and one of the guys who you played with before your call up and after your call up uh wayne Doucette. so i reached out to wayne and uh he said to ask you to tell me about uh you hunting and you were hiding in a tree, and a bear was shaking the tree. Uh, do you remember that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Deucer, yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of a little bit longer story than that. But, yeah, we were bear hunting, and the bear was at the bottom of the tree. We were in a tree stand anyways. But uh, Deucer was a great guy. I hung around with Deuce. Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, still there? Oh, yeah, yeah, I hung around with Wayne or Lots. He's a good guy. Now, I heard he's a... Uh, is he a plumbing and heating or something he does now, or a gas fitter or something? That I don't know, but he's definitely on my list of guys who I want to get on the show, so I will find that out. Um, but he also said that you love country music, and he said you had giant feet. He says he thinks you had size <laughs> 13 or 14 feet. Yeah, size full size. Damn. Size 14, yeah. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that's funny. Deucer was, he was a... Uh, fun guy he liked to party and have fun and listen to music and he'd always pretend he was playing the drums i missed deucer he was good man well another guy later on uh that i reached out to also mentioned your love of country music and karaoke uh but we'll get to that uh so at the end of that season you yeah i guess you became a free agent and you ended up signing with chicago um, did you have other teams that were interested and in, or, or was there a chance you would have went back to the island or was it ready was it time to move on well, it's funny, uh, that's a good question. I, 
I had a career year, and in those days there was no such thing as everyone was restricted as free agents. You yeah. couldn't just move. But if you were on a termination contract, which um, when you were kind of going nowhere fast, your last year they'd offer you a termination. You had a month or something to look around for another team. Once you signed it and got it back to your team, you were a free agent without compensation at the end of that year. And I just happened to have a career year that year. So I actually had, uh, I think, six teams bidding. Um, and uh, I think it was Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Calgary. Um, did I say Chicago already? Uh, and the Islanders had told my agent just to wait and make sure we got a hold of them before we signed with anyone. Mm -hmm. And uh, I got a call from the draft, and uh, Chicago had made an offer and given... You know, I had to decide in a couple hours, so I signed it, mm -hmm. and uh, and then it ended up New York was pretty pissed off. I guess they would have maybe matched or whatever, and I, it was probably one of the worst decisions I've ever made because at the time, the Islanders weren't very good, yeah. and I had kind of got my foot in the door at the end of the year. I was probably going to get a good look the next year, but Chicago supposedly wanted a big, you know, just like everyone, they're looking <laughs> for a big tournament. And I had been playing center the last half of the season. Mm. And uh, they kind of, for whatever reason, I'd been told they wanted to move Creighton and they wanted a big centerman. So I was going to get a good look there. So I ended up signing with Chicago. And uh, once again, uh, Keenan probably wasn't a coach that uh, would you know, his coaching style, you know, I should have probably known to stick with the Islanders. But whatever, that's the way it goes. So I signed with them anyways. But Well, um, and they actually did trade Creighton. They traded him to the Islanders. Yeah, Creighton yeah. and Stevie Thomas to the Islanders for Brent. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, you spent most of the year in Indianapolis that year. I got to ask you about two guys. Uh, both are very well known, but for very different reasons. Uh, Don, you played Dominic Hasek, who I don't think was Dominic Hasek at that point in his career. Uh, so he was your goalie, and then you also played with someone uh, like uh, Western League legend, minor league legend, Kerry Toporowski. So uh, what are your memories of those two guys? Oh well, Topper was ended up being probably my closest uh, friend on the team. We hung out all the time. Our girlfriends got along well. Mm. Um, he was a real a real character. Uh, just to talk about Dominic first, yeah. interesting enough, uh, he was already uh, famous in the international hockey circles and in Czechoslovakia or whatever before he came over. Um, so he was actually famous by that time, but, but not NHL for right. NHL purposes. But he was living, believe it or not, in Chicago, driving to Indianapolis every day. And he would stay overnight or in the hotel or whatever for games and then drive back and forth on practice days to Chicago. Is that right? Yeah. And he could, when he was there... He could not stop a beach ball. 
He was awful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I say. In, in, in North America, anyway, he wasn't Dominic Hasek yet. No, and he... He, uh... I mean, he was probably not very happy to be in Indianapolis, but he... So I'd imagine he wasn't really motivated to be good, but he, he did play very well for us. To his defense, we weren't very good either. Yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't getting much for help, but... Uh, he was cheerful and all that. He he, uh, he was friendly enough, but he didn't really hang around any of us much. He was usually gone. Yeah. Um, and then Topper, he uh, we traded for Topper during camp. I, they traded Doug Wilson for Kerry Topperowski, I believe. Yeah, I think you're and, right. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone was excited to see Kerry Topperowski. He had quite a reputation and. And he lived up to it. He was a tough customer, and uh, we had a lot of fun together, Topper and I. And he ended up having a pretty good minor league career, but he never really got a, a chance uh, to play in the NHL. Right, right. Uh, and you did play one game uh, for Chicago that year uh, against Minnesota. Um, and Chicago always had tough players, like you played with Grimmer again and Peluso. Um, Steve Smith and Buskis were there, Marchman. Um, and uh, you do hold a, a milestone for a team like Chicago is pretty interesting. First player to wear number 46. Oh, yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you always kind of knew where you stood in camp, <laughs> depending on what career you had. Eh? So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think in New York I was always 42 from the time I got yeah. there, and then in Chicago I was 46. Yeah. So you always kind of knew if you had a chance to make the team or not, depending on how low your jersey <laughs> number was. <laughs> um, when the following season, you played the whole year in Indianapolis, and one thing that stood out to me when I was researching this, do you you probably don't remember it, especially because you played there for years. In 92-93, do you know who led the team in penalty minutes? Well, I might have. I don't know for sure. You did not. Who was was it? Was who would have, who would have been there that year and let the team penalty? How about pick someone who you wouldn't guess? Because we didn't really have overly. See what happened in Indianapolis? They won the Turner Cup with Daryl coaching, mm -hmm. and then there was a big turnover. So we uh, we weren't very good actually. Yeah. Um, and we weren't very tough. Yeah. Just trying to think of who the hell we might have had. You kind of got me stumped. I'm usually good yeah. with stuff like that. Well, how about this? You had 123 penalty minutes, so that's a respectable amount, especially 41 games. How about Sergei Krivokrasov led the Indianapolis oh. Ice in penalty minutes? Yeah, Krivo. And you know, funny, uh, I got tons of Krivo stories. But when he came, he was just a kid. Eh? He was 18. And uh, he was a character. He uh, he was a lot of fun. He didn't know English very well, so sometimes he got a bit defensive because he thought we were always teasing him. When we weren't always teasing him, but you know sometimes we were. But <laughs> he was a little bit defensive. But he was he was one skilled player. The next year, my last year in Indianapolis, I scored 23 goals. Yeah. I was playing center and he was playing the off wing. And I don't know how many games he played that year, but man, he 
he set me up for some tappings just like Brunner did a couple of years before. He right. was incredible. He could he could put the puck under the crosser from the goal line. Like he had this he deke back and forth and just put it right under the bar. Man, he was a skilled player. He played 53 games that year. Uh, he had 45 points. He had two less than you, but you also played uh, 24 more games than he did. But you were third in scoring that year. He was fourth. Yeah, he he played on my wing. I had two Russians. I don't know if Andreevsky was. Maybe he wasn't there that year, but I had him and Andreevsky on my line for a while. Um, maybe the year before, but no, Krivo was a skilled player, lots of fun. Funny one time, uh, you know, you talk about Kerry Toporowski and Sergei Krivo Krasov. Krivo was on a one-way deal, and Topper was making whatever, 40 grand or 45 grand, and we'd do shootouts at the end of practice, and sometimes we'd play for a bit of money, or we'd play for pop or juices or whatever the hell. You decided, well, Topper and frickin' Krivo decide they're going to do a shootout for, for money, for paychecks. No way. Because Topper was a, you know, he liked to gamble, and yeah. Krivo, you could talk him into anything. So Topper and Krivo, of course, went for, for that hook, line, and sinker because he thinks, well, I'm going to, this will be easy money for me. But he didn't realize that Topper had really good hands and was pretty good on breakaways. And frickin' yeah. Topper beat him. No. And I think Crevo was making 180 grand. Topper was making whatever, 40. So you can imagine the difference in paychecks. Anyways, Marksy stepped in. and uh, I can't remember. Topper would be able to tell you what they ended up settling on. I think Crevo actually ended up giving him $1,000 or something. But uh, Marks, he wouldn't let him top or take his paycheck. <laughs> what? But, That's phenomenal. That's a great story. Yeah. What? The, what yeah. was it? What was it like playing for Dwayne Sutter? Dog. Yeah. I really like. I probably had my second best season of hockey at him on a personal level playing for Dog. I like Dog. He. He was. Uh, I. I don't know what style I would say he wasn't um, he wasn't a real hard disciplined you know disciplinarian like like Daryl yeah he was pretty soft-spoken um, he worked hard at his job and he was very competitive he was fair you know what he was like he was was like he, any good coach was you know he was once again he was very expected you to work hard yeah. He wasn't a rat and raven lunatic like you might think. Mm. I mean, he had his days for sure, but uh, he was a good. I enjoyed playing for Dwayne. Yeah, he put a lot of stock in the older guys. Like he gave us a lot of responsibility and trusted us. Yeah. Um, and we were expected to look after the younger guys. Like I was, Creed uh, was. Uh, babysitter because he was just a kid and he was always in trouble um <laughs> but uh Dwayne Dwayne uh, was a really good coach I, we, I think most guys that were there enjoyed playing for him he wasn't a pushover by any means he, right. he you know he demanded professionalism and and uh hard work um your career really is almost like a tale of two careers uh and I would say the second 
half of your career um, was because you went out, you ended up overseas. Now, um, what led to your decision to go overseas as opposed to staying in North America? Well, to be honest, I really didn't have any other options. Mm -hmm. um, I probably that was when the IHL took off, mm -hmm. and it, it was turning into an independent league, and players were signing contracts uh, with with IHL teams other, rather than NHL teams. Yeah, um, it was kind of that transition the I made to a. They weren't rivaling the NHL, but they were kind of going that direction. And uh, I probably could have kicked around on 20. I don't know if they were still doing 25-game tryouts or what they were doing, but mm -hmm. I didn't really want to do that. Yeah. Um, nobody offered me a deal. You know, if someone would have offered me a, a year uh, contract, I would have signed it in a heartbeat. But... I really couldn't play anywhere else, and, and then the timing, as far as Europe was concerned, was really good. Um, it was opening up to more Canadians, because before that, you pretty well had to have a really strong minor league resume or an NHL resume to go to Europe. Yeah. But a couple of years there, I don't know if you remember the Bosman rule and a bunch of stuff happened, and it really opened it up for guys like me. And I really extended my career six. I got eight or nine years in Europe yeah. playing and uh, making decent money where I would have normally been at the coal mine. Yeah. Um, so to answer your question, the reason I went to Europe was because nobody wanted me back here. So, um, And it was probably the best thing um, for me anyways. I, you know, I'd kind of come to the... Re realization that I wasn't going to play in the NHL. And having said that, I might have gave up a bit early, but hmm. well, who knows? I mean, we're going to talk about some numbers that you put up, but uh, now, when uh, when you first went over, did you first go to uh, Bracknell, or did you go to Italy first? I went to Bracknell, and hmm. then and then partway through the year, I asked if they would release. That was the year of the first strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, Namonte was playing in Indi in um, Italy, and when he went back to the NHL when it fired up, I took his spot in Italy. So I was in Bracknell, and I asked if they would let me go. Our team wasn't very good. We were kind of going nowhere. Yeah. And I was lucky enough. Owner said, yeah, go ahead. Go play in Italy. So I went to Italy. Now, I went through. Yeah, I was going to say, in Bracknell, you played 24 games, 24 goals, 24 assists, 48 points. Uh, and then when you go to Italy, you play 15 games, 31 points. So uh, you must have been playing a ton on both of these teams. Yeah, in, in Italy, uh, I played really well. And Bracknell, I mean, the hockey wasn't even as good as senior hockey in Canada. So the stats are a little bit misleading. That there's two years of hockey I played in Britain before the Super League started there that the hockey wasn't even really as good as senior hockey in Canada. So the statistics may look like I was Gretzky-like, but I really wasn't. <laughs> so, and actually, the, 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 I'm more being of Italian descent. My father was born in Italy. I'm really curious about the uh, the hockey over there uh, when you went over there. That's one thing I told you that I'm going to have Rodemayo on, and I know he played there too. 
Um, what was the hockey like in Italy? Did you? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you enjoyed being there. It's Italy, but uh, but how was the hockey there? Um, the hockey was good. Yeah. It was fast. Um, there's a big difference between your high end players and then your lower end ones because yeah. obviously you got quite a few Italians who they're good soccer players, but yeah. they're not very good <laughs> hockey players. So. So you had some really good teams that were, uh, the teams with money were really good. They probably weren't quite as good as American League teams, but they might have been faster. Yeah. And then your weaker teams would have, you know, maybe a few good players, but they'd have some weaker ones too. So I I wouldn't say it was as good as the American League. Maybe some games were, but some of it was quicker. Yeah. For sure. Um, You know, the... The teams that were the best were teams that could afford to pay Italian Canadians. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. if you had a p- Italian passport, you you were going to make pretty good money, and you're, you know, everyone wanted you, so you had some bargaining power. Um, there was some good uh, imports. Dave Pacine was playing in Bolzano. He was yeah. he was kind of like the king of Kensington there. Um, just trying to think of who else you'd know that was in the league. Uh, I know yeah. um, in, with Fossa, uh, Eric Dandino was there. I know who he is. Yeah, Eric was mm-hmm. there that year. Um, he's kind of the only guy that had played any type of pro that anyone here would know. Yeah. Uh, he actually went back and played in the American League after. Yeah. Which is kind of weird. That doesn't usually happen, but with him it did. Um, and then, and then uh, there was guys like Gord Donnelly, and there was some ex-NHLers on some of the other teams in Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, Ken Strong. Uh, There's some pretty good hockey players over there. Yeah. Kelly Gloa, you wouldn't know, but no, he was uh, he was a good good player over there at the time. Mm-hmm. Well. Well, I have to talk about next season, um, and you already said about the caliber of hockey, but now next season uh, you played again in Britain and Italy. Uh, did you start out in Bolzano, or did you start out in Manchester? Yeah, what happened was was I started in Bolzano. I, I played that last half of the season in, um, in Fossa and had a great, I uh, had a re- really good, uh, whatever, three months. And then... Uh, Ron Chipperfield was the GM of of, of Balzano, mm-hmm. so he offered a contract to go play in Balzano, and I actually took Dave Pacine's spot. I seemed to take a lot of good players' <laughs> spots, and uh, and they were the Montreal Canadiens of the Italian League. Like there was a lot of pressure there, and it didn't really work out. I ended up getting bought out. Mm-hmm. Mode third or a quarter of the way through the season yeah um, but uh, it was a beautiful city to live in beautiful rink we had a good team yeah we never really had a great start but it was a neat place to play and then I went to Manchester after that just because I needed a place to play it that was fun the hockey wasn't very good it was once again I'm not even sure it was as good as senior hockey here but it was fun and and with the, uh, all the old rules and all that change, most of the team was Canadian. Yeah. 
so we had a blast. We uh, we caroused and, and had partied hard, and, <laughs> and uh, I think we won like 49 games in a row or something. It was fun. Okay, so I think what people need to understand is so you've already set set everybody up with your with the caliber of play, but you played 42 games that year, 70 goals, 7-0, 70 goals, 120 assists, 190 points. How you managed to get 135 penalty minutes, I have no idea because you're scoring all those points. But I think the most interesting thing is you were you were still 53 points behind the leading scorer on the team, Hilton Ruggles. Um, yeah, Hilton, yeah, the poacher, that was his nickname. He, uh, I only, I think I played maybe two-thirds of the game, so mm-hmm. I probably would have caught him if, if I'd have played all the games, but it would have been tough for me to catch him, but I probably could have. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think I finished uh, seventh in the league in scoring. Second on your team. You scored 190 points and you didn't even yeah. lead your team in scoring. And, by the way, I don't know if you remember, um, Speaking of your hero, Daryl Sittler, you did have 10 points in your first game. Six goals yeah. six goals, and four assists in your first game. I mean, did you play on the line with Hilton? Yeah, I did. He was my left winger. I was playing center. Funny story my wife tells is uh, in Manchester, they built an NHL caliber rink, and that was the first year it was open. And we used to put, you know, we'd get eight, nine, ten sometimes even 14,000 people there to watch. And yeah. those were nights when Man U was playing Manchester United yeah. soccer team. And uh, the first game I got 10 points. And then the next game I think I got 8 points. And Stacy was up in the rafters. They treated the girls really good there in this new rink. They got this nice place to sit and drinks and beers and everything mm-hmm. and she said all the other wives were happy the first point or goal I got they were clapping their hands and then the second one they were still kind of excited but by the time we got to the third and fourth <laughs> point of goal they were kind of sick of me already I guess <laughs> well as long as she's not sick of you then that's okay that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. um and, and as you said now, this was before the Super League, but the next year was, I believe, the first year of the Super League. And you actually ended up playing in three places that year. So I'm assuming you started the year in Manchester um, and then went to Austria and then went to Fresno. Is that how it happened? Yeah, what happened was, was I was in Manchester, and that was, they called it the Super League. What happened was, was they, they, uh, they stepped it up and they... Uh, the level of hockey went way up. They mm-hmm. changed the import rules, which over there means everything. Yeah. Uh, they got all the rich teams that could afford to pay, and they uh, they wanted to have a quality league. And I would say the hockey was probably between the East Coast and the American League. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a lot of older guys that had played in the minors and then some East, good East Coast League guys and then some good Europeans. Yeah. And uh, I got in a bit of a disagreement. Like the coaching, uh, the coaching was hadn't really caught up to the hockey there for the most part. But anyways, I got in an argument with the coach and 
ended up just saying, oh, I'm, heading, I'm out of here. So I went and uh, I think I went to Vienna. I came, I went directly from there to Vienna. Yeah. And Ken Tyler was coaching in Vienna, and uh, I played the rest of the year there and had a pretty good year. And they, actually, they had a Harry Hanto was yeah. there, Timo mm-hmm. Bloomquist. Yep. Um, <clears throat> probably those are two of the only guys that you'd know from North America. But of course, Austria is good hockey. Yeah. That was a good experience to live. Vienna is an incredible city. That was pretty neat um, to live there. And then when our season was over, I wanted to play a little bit longer. So I went to Fresno for Guy Godowski yeah. and played the playoffs in Fresno. And, uh, and Guy Godowski was the coach. He's the co- He runs the Penn State program now, the hockey program there. But at the time, he was just starting out coaching in Fresno. Mm-hmm. Funny story of that playoff series in the semifinals I went for the playoffs we played Anchorage and we won the series three games to two but I believe was it the fourth game? I think that we got we got disqualified. We ended up losing the series. We won the series but we got disqualified. And we had to play again, and we'd been up drinking all night, and we got beat the next day and lost the series. Oh, is that <laughs> yeah. how you? Is that one of the reasons you managed fifty-seven penalty minutes in five games? Yeah, I'm not sure what happened there. Yeah, yeah. it was pretty physical hockey there. There was a lot of guys that wanted to make it to the next level. So, yeah, it was it was physical hockey in that in that league at that time. Yeah, one of the guys you played with, and I think he became a player coach a few years later, uh, you know, a guy I know from Western League and played in the American League, uh, Greg Spenrath. I think he's a big yeah. deal. I think he's a big deal in Fresno. Yeah, Spenner, he was the king of Kensington. He was, uh, well, in all those cities, uh, minor league cities, they love the tough guys, right? Yeah. Spenner was a tough guy, and he played physical and then the fans really liked him there I, I don't know what Spenner's doing now I haven't heard really what he's up to he might even be living there still a lot of those cities that those guys stay there yeah they get jobs and they you know they use the hockey connections to kind of make the transition from from hockey to real life mm-hmm. now after that you ended up back on the other side of the pond uh, is, and I, is it air is that how you say it yeah, spelt A Y R. Right. Scotland, yeah. So, how did you end up with Air? Um, I, during that summer, uh, they offered, uh, they, they had a good team there, and they had solid ownership, and their coach had actually worked his way up from that old hockey like that I played originally in Britain. Yeah. And he was running that team, and he had liked me as a player before so he offered a contract and so we decided that that would be a good spot to go and I ended up being there for five years actually Air Scotland is a suburb of Glasgow mm-hmm. it's probably a half hour 45 minutes from Glasgow I think it was and then Troon I don't know if you're a golfer you'll know the Royal Troon golf course that's actually just outside Air Scotland well I know I know golf is I think it was uh created in Scotland. That's not my cup of tea, um, but uh, but I figured that I probably had something, there was going to be a golf story somewhere in there. 
Um, yeah. Five years in there, I mean, you have to be... Well, now, and this is this is around the time that a lot of North American tough guys ended up going over there. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure if I'm accurate, like a Mike McWilliam, who I believe was the scourge of the league for a while. Um, oh. Yeah, Barry Nykar was there. Paxton Schulte yeah. was there. It seems like all you guys uh, over a season or two were here. Then you went ended up over there, and I think it gave the league sort of a North American flavor that if you guys weren't there might not have uh, been as physical, let's say. Oh, definitely. When they, What happened was, was every, every team, the first year the Super League was, was uh, running, it was, it was physical hockey, and Brit, Brits like physical hockey, but they still didn't have the tough guys from the American League and, and the IHL. And then... Uh, Every team kind of got one, and you know how that goes. Yep. It's like the arm race, yep. right? And mm-hmm. then everyone started getting a few, and then the nail in the coffin for that was Chris McSorley went to London. Yeah. Remember Chris? Oh, yeah. I played in Springfield. I played yep. with him. And uh, he started bringing some legitimate guys in. That kind of got everybody going. So Mac ended up playing in Cardiff. Uh, Troy Crowder ended up playing in London. Yeah. Uh, Paxton Schulte, very tough player. He played in Brackdale in Glasgow. Yeah. Um, that's a few guys that come to mind, but there was a whole bunch of guys that ended up. Greg Smith or Smythe, I'm not sure yeah. how you say his last name. Yeah. Um, yeah, there was uh, a lot of tough, hot, uh, hard-nosed guys ended up playing over there. And I've looked at YouTube a little bit. I guess there's still quite a few... Um, guys from pro here going over there, tough guys and stuff. It's still pretty tough, but it was good hockey too. It, it was, it was, it was a fun league to play in. Um, yeah. It got a little bit silly for a little bit, but for the most part, oh, Dennis Vial was there. Yeah. Paul Cruz was there. Yeah, Dan Lacroix ended um, up there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just names that come to mind. Uh, we had, uh, oh, we had. Um, the heck I can't remember his name now we had a couple X well your first year first we had Phil Crow yeah the first year you had Joey Middlestad who played with Cape Breton yeah we had Joey uh, and then we had Phil Crow who boy very underrated tough guy there he's a tough customer that was later Uh, later on you had Phil Crow Dodie Wood Ian Herbers yeah um yeah Dodie came came over that was my fourth year there i think and, well how's uh, this how's for an underrated guy gets very little press and if you don't really follow the physical players you don't know how tough trevor doyle is Ooh, trevor i forgot about trevor yeah that was nice having him he kept the games nobody got too wound up when trevor was on our team he yeah. was a, he's probably one of the toughest guys i've played with yeah and uh I hung out with him once. Good guy. Yeah. He's from Ottawa. I, mm-hmm. I hope he's doing well. I haven't heard from him for a while, but um, very, very tough. Yeah. So your he first. He could have been a tough guy in the NHL for sure. Yeah, he did real well in the American League. I, that's where I first uh, I first saw him. I think he was with Syracuse, and um, uh, maybe also Louisville or somewhere wherever the Panthers were. Uh, yeah. Carolina, actually Carolina. So uh, yeah, he was always a tough guy. Tough, tough player um first year uh we we talked about him and he's a he's a good friend of mine uh mike mcwilliam 
Uh, you fought him in uh, in Cardiff. Now I know you say you're like a middleweight and everything, and Mike's definitely a heavyweight. Um, what do you remember fighting Mac? To be honest, he fought me. I never fought him. <laughs> what happened was, and I always I always have to tell people because that stuff gets on YouTube and it's embarrassing, right? But anyways, I turtled. Yeah. And it's probably one of the only times I ever turtled. He. He, he, I know he knew me and I knew him through guys we played with, but his job was to be physical. So he used to come after me all the time there. And, uh, and it was, it was, it was, I believe it was the game we clinched first place. And he, he, uh, wanted to fight and I turtled and he punched me a couple times in the head and he got a, he got a two minute minor and we scored on the power play and won one nothing. So, I always feel like that kind of made up for turtling because it's, I don't like turtling, but at the end of the day, I turtled and we won the game because of it, but still kind of embarrassing. But, well, if I would have known that, I wouldn't have asked you. <laughs> I wouldn't have put you on the spot. Actually, he's actually one of the tougher guys, I think, underrated. Uh, he's a tough customer, yep. Mac. Mm-hmm. Um, Another guy that was in that league that you'll remember is Mike Ware. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. And actually, my first year in the American League, Mike was one of the top dogs as far as fighting. Went. Yep. He kind of, people kind of forget about him, but he was a tough customer, too. He actually had a full career in Britain. Yeah. He oh, definitely. a few years. I, I think, think he might have married a girl from there, too. I don't really remember for sure, but I think he did. I think Mac told me one of the reasons why he was brought over there was because Mike Ware, Mike Ware was terrorizing the league. Yeah, Mike was probably the only real, for the first two or three years, the first two years of that league, Mike was running the show and he was terrorizing the league. He yeah. was really one of the only real legitimate heavyweights, mm-hmm. and that's when everyone else started getting getting guys that's when Paxton showed up and Mm. Mac showed up and you know they started showing up after that Um, I think your third year um, you played with a guy who a lot of people probably want to kill every time they play him uh, Rob Trumbly oh Trummer yeah (laughs) yeah we had a lot of fun Trummer's a good man Um, he's uh, he's a little tough guy like he's not very big for a tough guy but he's a tough customer too yeah but he wasn't, uh, like, I think Trummer might have been five. I hate not to give him credit for he probably gets sick of hearing it, but <laughs> he might have been 5'10". Yeah, maybe. Maybe a buck 80 or so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah he was, and we had, you know, another guy that we had on our team that very underrated was Jim Matheson. He was a killer. Yeah, he, he played, I remember him from Baltimore, and I think he played yeah. in Portland also uh, later yeah. on. Yep, uh, Capital uh, Farmhand. Took him a lot to get wound up, but man, you didn't want to piss him off. He was tough. <laughs> and that season, in 99-2000, you were named captain of the team. I mean, you have to be, I would think, one of the more recognizable, notable players in the history of the franchise. Um, whether, whether you want to say it or not, I'll ask your wife. I'm sure she'll say for sure. Well, I played five years there. Yeah. Um, uh, we did a lot of winning yeah. the first three years to well the first two years I was there um, and we kind of poked away at winning after that it, yeah I was one of the I was 
one of the mainstays. Like I missed the first year of the organization, and then I played every year but the last one. So actually, I'm not tooting my own horn or anything. I think I was the all-time leading scorer or something for the uh, for the organization. But I was also there probably longer than anyone else. So well, that's okay. Um, Both are yeah. good job security and uh, you know leading scorer. That's not too bad either way. Yeah. So. But we really enjoyed it there. Our daughter, Jamie, was born there. And the Scottish people are a blast. They love, love to have fun. And we had always a good group of guys that liked going out at night, and drinking beer and, and having fun. It was a great time. So Great time to be a hockey player. So two of the guys that we mentioned, uh, and again, the, the, the stats and everything and the fight cards from this time, uh, they're not easily accessible, but... Uh, I know that you tangled with Barry Nightcar at least one time, and I know that you fought Cruiser at least one time. Uh, do you remember those fights? Yeah, Cruiser, I don't know. He was cranky that day. I had a mask on because I got hit in the mouth with a shot. Yeah. I had missed a month, and he punched me in the face or something. I had a mask on, and it was just a scruffle on the boards. And then Nightcar, I think he was kind of always chasing me around too trying to get me to fight and I finally fought him but it wasn't much of a fight I just kind of held on I got you. but he's a big strong man yeah well for sure um so when your time with air was over you ended up back in North America uh playing for Bakersfield uh almost a, again almost a point a game 65 points 68 games 121 penalty minutes and uh I reached out again to one of your former teammates it's a guy that I had first met when he was with Springfield uh, David Bell. Oh, and, Bellsy. Yeah. So, um, so I sent him a message. He answered back, and uh, he said, uh, "We only played together one year, but I remember little Bowen was running around then." Uh, he said he doesn't have many stories, except he remembers when you arrived in Bakersfield in a Montana minivan with a car topper storage thing on the roof, and you didn't remove it all year. He said, <laughs> "Pretty funny to see this big macho man arrive at the rink every day." in his minivan with luggage topper all year. He said, you're a great family man, and he said, uh, he, he and you uh, had a pretty good karaoke night at Buck Owens Crystal Palace on stage with the Buckaroos. He said, you could really belt it out with your deep voice. Yeah, we had, Belzy and I had lots of fun in Bakersfield. Um, actually, Buck Owens had a, a, a he had built a brand new bar in Bakersfield. It was a, it was a little place, and because it was Buck Owens, he would get all the big name guys there, all the big country entertainers. Mm -hmm. And it was just a little bar, like maybe hold a, a couple hundred people or something. So Belzy and I were big country fans. So the manager of the team loved hockey, or the manager of. of Buck Owens' place loved hockey, so he he started getting us into all, all the he started getting us going there, and, and what we'd get to meet all the the entertainers that were there, and uh, so that was Belzy and I's thing. We always did that, and yeah, we'd get a chance to sing once in a while too. <laughs> so uh, we had a lot of fun there. And Dave Bell, by the way, he is probably pound for pound in the top half a dozen fighters I've ever seen. He could fight. So the reason why I introduced myself to him uh, that year in Springfield, 
Um, one game I went to, they were playing uh, Quebec, the Quebec Citadels, who were Montreal's farm team. They had moved them out of Fredericton to Quebec City. And uh, I knew a lot of guys on the Quebec team, and one of the guys I knew was this guy Darcy Harris, who you may or may not have heard of. And Darcy's a real understated guy, not a very big guy, but just tough, like super, super yeah. tough, tough as nails, could play the game. And him and Bell had a toe-to-toe beauty tilt one night. And I didn't know much about David other than his stats. I'd never seen him play live before. And that fight was unreal. So, um, And I remember after the game speaking to Darcy about it. And then anyway, the next game that uh, we went to at Springfield, I made a point. Because I think Kevin Sawyer was also on that team, and I had known Kevin yeah. a little bit. So uh, I made a point to make sure that I went on the other side of the rink. I just introduced myself to Dave, and I'm just like, man, for that fight with Darcy Harris was unreal. And uh, so that's what, you know, I know really tough, understated, like sneaky tough in a way, because if you don't know him, he's going to put you to sleep. Oh, yeah, he's, uh, and he could hit too, like, like body check. He had this play he would do, he'd swing behind the net in his own end, yeah. and he'd pretend that he lost the puck in his feet. And, of course, four checkers' eyes would light up they think they were going to run him over. And then at the last second, he would just spring into them yeah. and just frickin' lamb base, guys. <laughs> uh, but Belzy, like, I've been lucky enough to play with some pretty tough guys that aren't big and such a Robbie, yeah. you know, Rod Dolman, Cush, they're not big guys. Mm-hmm. Um, David Bell is right up there, man. He was yeah. tough. Yeah, he, he made... He made nights pretty easy in that league, also because no one wanted to piss him off. Nice. So that uh, was your, that was your last year. Uh, what led to your decision to retire? Well, we wanted to. We left Europe. I could have probably went back there, um, but then we decided we wanted to play one year in the states before we shut her down. Mm-hmm. And so. Uh, Paul Kelly was the coach of uh, Bakersfield, and I played against him in the minors. He was in Utica, so we kind of knew each other, just who we were, so ended up in Bakersfield. And then after that season, my wife got a good job in Cranbrook, and that kind of made the decision easy. You know how it goes when you're playing hockey, uh, you're always worried about the inevitable which is what the hell are you going to do when you're done playing because most of us didn't really worry about it until it was you know time we didn't really prepare for it that well um so stacy got a good job Mm -hmm. um i had i didn't have a job yet but uh i was still negotiating with a few teams and then i just decided to stay home. Yeah. I didn't want to be away from the kids and from space, so I just stayed home. So, um, mostly just the, the main reason was we, we had, you know, an income here. Yeah. So that was going to make the transition easy from hockey to real life. Yeah. So we're going to fast forward a few years later, and you end up as an assistant coach. Uh, with the Lethbridge Golden Hawks, which is a triple-A bantam in uh, Lethbridge. And uh, you knew the captain of that team pretty well, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's like Bowen's team? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah but 
what happened was, was after I retired, I just, you know, kind of forgot about hockey altogether yeah. for quite a few years. And then when Bowen started playing, he was excelling, but he was only four and five years old. And then um, by the time he was nine or eight, he was still excelling. I knew they needed some decent coaches. So I, not that they didn't have decent coaches, but, um, you know, I felt like I could maybe help in that, that way. So I, I started coaching. So I coached Bowen's teams from the time he was nine to 12 here in Cranbrook. And then we had to move him to Lethbridge when he was 13, which was the Golden Hawks. Yeah. Triple um, A Bantam. We didn't have Triple A Bantam here, and you pretty well have to play Triple A Bantam if you want to be a hockey player. So Lethbridge is four hours away, so we rented a house there, and uh, my mom lived there, and Pius, her boyfriend, and they looked after Bowen, and then we ran back and forth between work and Jamie, her daughter, and and I actually helped my coach, Mike Dick, who I had played. In the, he played in Regina and Brandon and a few places. We kind of knew each other. So I helped him coach one year when he was hired up and needed some help. So that's that's where that came from. So um, so we spent the last two hours talking about you and your career. Uh, but what? Uh, give me the scouting report on Bowen. Uh, so those of you who, who may not know, if you're more of an old school guy like myself, uh, Bizey's son, Bowen Byron, was drafted fourth overall by the Avalanche in uh, 2019. Uh, what kind of player are the Avalanche getting in Bowen Byron? Well, as a junior, um, he's very offensive. Um, he's a good skater. Um, he rushes the puck. He, uh, he, makes, he makes good plays. He's smart with the puck. He's a power play guy. But he's pretty good. Uh, he's he's good uh, two way. Like he's pretty good defensively for the most part when he wants to be. Um, he plays pretty hard. He's competitive. Uh, he trains like a son of a gun. Like most of the kids now, they train hard. Yeah. Um, so projection wise, I I don't know really for sure. Uh, I've got a lot of buddies that scout and that. He's projected to be a good NHL defenseman. Um, he's probably got a chance to make it next year as a 19-year-old. Uh, this COVID thing and all this is probably going to throw some type of a wrench into what happens. I'm not sure which which way it'll go, Yeah. depending on how they start this next season or this season or whatever. But... Uh, He's got one more, well, two more, his 19-year-old year um, left in the Western Hockey League. So if he doesn't make the avalanche, then he'll be he'll be back in Vancouver for another year. Um, depending, once again, he'll probably get a long look because he's a fourth pick overall. Yeah. And he finished the season really well. So hopefully he gets a shot at it. I think it'll be maybe a touch disappointing if he doesn't make it but yeah. uh, this year but hopefully if he keeps training like he's training and keeps improving and getting better he'll he'll have an NHL career but nothing's guaranteed yeah um, anybody that's in the game knows that it's, uh, 
a lot of good players and a lot of draft picks uh, don't make it. So we don't want to count our chickens before they hatch either. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully he will have a good career. Um, he definitely has the skill to and the drive. Mm-hmm. It just hopefully everything comes together for him. Well, um, everything I know about him, besides the few things I've seen on YouTube, um, the first person that I asked about him was Dean Chenowth. And anybody that knows hockey knows that Dean Dean was, like you say, he was born into the sport with his dad being uh, running the Western League and everything. And Dean is a really, really smart hockey guy. And when we were talking about him, Dean just got this look in his eye like he just absolutely raved about him. And, uh, you know, for someone like myself, I've known Dean a long time. And, you know, when, when he says what his, his opinion on someone holds a lot of weight with me because I know he, he lives and breathes this game. And it was just the way that he, he talked about uh, Bowen. I was like, wow, this kid seems like the real deal. And then uh, I spoke to uh, Dave Chizowski about him too, and it was pretty much the same thing where um, it seems like if everything works out, the sky is the limit for this kid. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'm rooting for him for sure. And, uh, you know, if I have any say in it, I'll get him on the Islanders at some point, although I don't have any pull. But I wouldn't mind seeing another Byron dressed up in the blue and orange. Yeah, that'd be all right. Thanks a lot, Joe. That'd be, that'd be good. Hopefully, like like I said, I try to keep, uh, because expectations can lead to disappointment and it can lead to uh, undue pressure and all that. I try try to, to keep things in perspective. Hopefully, um, he can stay on track and keep working and getting bigger and stronger and faster and all those things you need to be to play and I think he'll be fine. Um, you always need a break here and there. It doesn't hurt to be a fourth pick overall. You usually get you usually get a few more chances when you're a first rounder. So he'll get his chances, and hopefully he makes the best of it and has a career in the NHL. So uh, I always conclude these interviews uh, the same way. I start them the same way. I always want to know who who you were on the ponds, and uh, I end them the same way. Um, so I did my best. I did as much research as humanly possible about your career. Uh, did I forget anything, or did I leave anything out? No, you're pretty thorough, George. You, you know your stuff. You, I don't think you missed anything, at least not anything we want to talk about on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, well, if that's the case, then uh, we're two hours and 15 minutes into this, and I, I really want to thank you. Uh, for the time, it was uh, it was really great going through uh, your career here, and um, uh, you know, like I said once again, thank you very much for the time, Sean. I really appreciate it. Hello. Yeah, are you there? Yeah, we just lost. I lost you there for a minute. Oh well, I was just I was just gushing and thanking you for uh, for the time that you allotted me, and uh, just telling you I had a lot of fun uh, going through your career here. Well, thanks. It's uh, I love talking about the. I'm an '80s guy, so I love talking about the '80s and the '90s, and, and um, it's a, it's a, it's fun to to talk about old times with people that appreciate them because sometimes you find yourself talking about them and no one gives a rat's ass because <laughs> they don't know what you're talking about. So it's pretty neat that you're uh, as knowledgeable as you are on uh, on on all these. Uh, all these seasons and 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 life uh, 
in in hockey. It's it's pretty neat to to be able to sit and bullshit with you about it. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this is when I grew up, I, I dove head first into the sport. Uh, you know, back then uh, during your time, that uh, that's really my wheelhouse. And uh, you know, doing the videos and things like that, it was uh, it, it's like a passion of mine. And uh, especially now, like we say, the way the game's going, I miss the old times. So when I uh, when I contact guys and I say, look, we're going to be chatting for a few hours, uh, and I always make sure that they you know they commit to doing it for sure because. The research that I do, I mean, I'm not complaining at all. I love doing it, but it's time-consuming, but it's like a labor of love because I get to reminisce about uh, the good times uh, back in the day when, you know, I was younger and I just, I loved the sport and it was violent and it was right up my alley. So uh, so I could talk about 80s hockey all the time, American League, whatever. It's, uh, it's been great chatting with you about this. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. It, uh, it brought brought a few more memories and things that I didn't even remember out. Excellent. Out. Yeah, so it's been been fun. All right. Well, Sean, I'm going to let you go, and, um, and we'll talk soon, okay? You betcha, buddy. All right. Thanks again, Sean. Have a good night. You, you bet. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye now. All right. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Sean Byram for the time. I really appreciated it. Um, after we stopped recording, I think we probably spoke for another hour and a half, two hours, uh, it had been a while since Sean and I had spoken. We had a ton of catching up to do, and um, it was it was great not only to do the recorded part of the interview, but also to catch up with him. Uh, tremendous guy, tremendous family man, and uh, as we spoke about in the interview, uh, keep an eye on Sean's son, Bowen, who was a first-round pick of the Avalanche, I think fourth overall. Uh, thankfully for me, selfishly, he didn't go to the Rangers, although I'm sure that would have been fantastic for Bowen. I'm just a selfish douchebag. Uh, Rangers are, as much as I hate to say it, they are a first-class organization and they treat their players right. Uh, I'm sure Bowen would have been treated very well, but uh, I imagine Colorado does right by their players too, especially with a guy like Joe Sackick in charge. So uh, I'm sure Bowen's in good hands and um, hopefully he enjoys his time in Colorado. From what I've heard from uh, his former coach, Dean Chenault, and his current coach, Dave Chazowski, uh, they just rave about him. I mean, this is uh, basically a world-class type talent, uh, potentially, that the Avalanche have in Bowen. So, um, you know, he's definitely someone I'll keep an eye on. I don't really watch too many players outside of uh, the Islanders nowadays, but uh, with his family ties to Sean, uh, I will definitely be keeping an eye out for Bowen, and I wish him nothing but the best. And uh, hopefully he has a few Stanley Cups along the way, as long as they don't come at the expense of the Islanders. And Bowen, by the way, if I have any power, I will be doing my best to get you here on the Islanders. Uh, of course, I have zero power, and the Islanders seem right now to be stuck in limbo with uh, Sorokin, another uh, nightmare situation that could possibly come to fruition. Uh, but that's not for me to decide right now, and uh, hopefully by the time, well, hopefully one of these episodes I'm going to say, well, they finally signed this guy. I'm sure it's not going to be easy. They uh, totally, well, I'm not going to get into it. I think I got into it already on an episode about what they did with the goaltending situation that they had, which is pretty good, and uh, totally uh, turned it over to appease a kid who may never actually play for the team. But I just said I wasn't going to get into it. Next Monday, if all breaks well, I will have an interview with two-time Memorial Cup champion, Calder Cup champion, and Stanley Cup champion, Robbie DeMaio. 
Uh, I am really looking forward to this. Uh, Robbie is a guy I've been a fan of for a very long time. First caught my attention when he fought Al Secord at the Nassau Coliseum. I was there for that. And uh, I, I knew a little bit about Robbie. Uh, you have to remember this is pre-internet, so it was pretty much just what I read about in hockey news or uh, season previews or season reviews. And didn't know much about him outside the numbers, uh, but that fight certainly caught my attention. And uh, also the fact that he's Italian. I am unapologetically very proud of my Italian heritage, and I'm very proud of uh, other Italians who have been successful in all walks of life. So uh, this is something I'm really looking forward to. And uh, if it comes to fruition, like I said, it'll drop next Monday, and I hope you people enjoy it. And with that, I will just say, uh, as we're all aware, pretty fucked up times right now in the world uh, and wherever you're listening I hope that you're safe I hope that your family is safe and uh, other than that and I gotta stop saying other than that but uh, everybody have a great week <laughs>